0: What I'd really like to do is talk to Dana. I want to talk to Dana. Dana, it's Peter.
1: There is no Dana. There is only zoo
0: Oh, Zoolie, you nut. Now, come on. Come on, I want to talk to Dana. Dana, just relax. Come on. Dana, Dana. Can I talk to Dana? There is no Dana, only Zoo. What a lovely singing voice you must have.
2: Hello, and welcome to a very spooky edition of When We Were Young, (laughs) filled with horrifying things like ghouls, ghosts, evil spirits, and a surprising amount of chain-smoking in a movie for children. Becky, is there something wrong with your voice? Are you okay? I have always talked like this.
1: Uh, Chris, has (laughs) Becky always been floating above the couch while we record? Yeah, yeah, What's wrong? I'm really sorry to interrupt everything for this with her head tucked under her arm yeah yeah (laughs) that's becky okay that part i remember
2: way to pay attention to me (laughs) in case you didn't know seth i'm becky and i'm the podcast host most likely to know that when someone asks you if you're a god you say yes
3: there is no dana only chris (laughs) the podcast host most likely to show this prehistoric bitch how we do things downtown
1: And just to remind you guys, this is Seth, and I'm the host most likely to imagine all life as you know it stopping instantaneously, and every molecule in your body exploding at the
2: speed of light. In today's episode, we'll be taking a look back at the hit action comedy horror film Ghostbusters, as well as its sequel, Ghostbusters 2. We'll also cover the Saturday morning TV show The Real Ghostbusters, and we'll be discussing the influence of this franchise on pop culture. Guys, are you ready to do some bustin'?
1: It makes me feel
2: good. (laughs)
3: <laughs> Sounds like a major slime-related psychokinetic event.
2: <laughs> You're exactly right, Chris. Let's go. Jumping back in the a Saturday morning, cause we both be cynical or radical. But was it good
0: cause we were young? Was it good cause we were dumb? Do we think it'll suddenly suck? Now we're cheated and all grown up. there was so much that we love. Do we think it'll make the cut? Will it be a fair sinner Fun. But decades later, we still hold up. This is when we were young. When we were
2: young. All right, before we get started, Chris, I believe we have a new review.
3: We do what we do. This review comes to us from Indy McGee. Hmm. Probably not this user's real name, but you never know. Is that short for Independent McGee? Indiana McGee, I oh, believe. Okay. And name the I'm crystal talking. of the forgotten rhinoceros. Okay, that's
1: the one.
3: Hey, it's a better title than the actual like, <laughs> fourth Indiana Jones. The title of this review is better than the title of the fourth Indiana Jones movie as well. It is, some men get the world, some men get ex-hookers in a trip to Arizona. I thankfully got this pod.
1: Uh,
2: w- what? <laughs> I'm touched and also confused. <laughs> I you both those reactions too, Becky. Is
3: uh, LA confidential?
2: Oh, I wouldn't have gotten that. <laughs> too confidential for
1: you? Too on the QT?
2: Too I've only seen it once. <laughs> yeah, if it's not on the
1: QT, very hush hush. I'm not going to remember the quote. But also, I do want to revisit that movie.
3: Well, luckily, we have a podcast that revisits (laughs) 90s films, so maybe we'll do that. Thank you for the inspiration, Indy. The review states, If I close my eyes, these pods take me back to my common room at USC sitting around at 2am talking with my friends about films and music I've loved my whole life. Each episode is filled with such intensity, specificity, and emotion. You know these hosts care as deeply as you do. Do yourself a favor, smash that like and subscribe, and then do what I'm doing and rewatch everything after the pod. Thanks, y'all. Keep up the great work.
2: Thank you, fellow Trojan. That yeah, was nice. I, I can't
3: relate at all to that lifestyle that
1: he <laughs> described. Thank you, fellow Trojan. I hope our check cleared. I
2: mean... <laughs> that was very sweet. Thank you for listening, and get ready to watch some Ghostbusters after listening to this episode.
1: Yeah, if this episode doesn't make you bust, I don't know what will. <laughs> I think that joke was kind of a bust, Seth.
2: Bust. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. I have a question for you guys. Who are you gon' call? <laughs> Ghostbusters. Do you have an answer? I, I think I'll text. Yeah. You'll text, Honestly, yeah.
3: do they have like a chat bot?
1: <laughs> yeah, if they don't accept DMs or something, I don't know if I'm gonna get in contact with them. Who's a calling person anymore these days?
2: You're gonna slide into uh, Winston's DMs? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Zeta more or less, yes.
3: I don't know, they only have two stars on Yelp, so I feel like maybe I could look for some competitors or something. <laughs>
2: My real question is, it's Halloween season, and this isn't necessarily a Halloween movie, but it's a spooky movie people watch on Halloween, and I just kind of want to know, when did you stop trick-or-treating?
1: I stopped trick-or-treating. I don't know the exact age or date, but I know that I stopped trick-or-treating when I started and took up the mantle of helping to distribute candy to trick-or-treaters at my house. Halloween was one of my very favorite holidays and pastimes growing up. Uh, I grew up in a suburban neighborhood that was built as a subdivision, so it was literally surrounded by walls and consequently was really easy to trick-or-treat in. And I always loved playing dress-up and playing as different characters from different things I liked. And I loved to go around to all the different houses and go trick-or-treating. And I thought that was the peak of the potential for that All Hallows' Eve day until I started dressing up, getting different scary costumes with my dad and my aunt and my grandma and other family who were in town. And we would post up literally all Halloween nights. Basically, until midnight, kids would keep coming, and we would scare the shit out of as many wow. trick or treaters as Wait. we possibly could. How old were you? That would have started around the time I was 10 or 11. 10
2: or 11?
1: Yeah, fourth, fifth, or sixth grade. That's when you
2: stopped trick or treating? That's when I stopped.
1: Wow. I kind of felt like there were diminishing returns with the prize that was candy. If you've got half a bag of candy or a whole bag of candy, to me, there's not much fundamental difference there. Like, it doesn't feel like more of an achievement or more of an adventure, and... uh, For me, the theatricality of it and dressing up and like finding spots like around columns of my house and like near trees or around corners, finding spots to hide in and jump out from and scaring the shit out of both children and adults alike was just so much more rewarding to me as a Halloween activity. (laughs) And so I kept doing that and. Kind of, we kept doing that, like me and my dad, and you know, any of my family who were in town and would want to come over. We kept that up until I was in high school, around like ninth or tenth grade. We stopped doing anything for Halloween at all, and I did genuinely lament when we stopped giving out candy to trick or treaters every year because it was a lot of fun. And it's like I say, I scare the shit out of people, but like it was incredibly fun for the people who trick or treated too. Mm -hmm. They loved it, and like people. would come from other neighborhoods to trick-or-treat in our particular neighborhood just because there were a lot of houses with a lot of families that would do really fun costumes or would like set up coffins and dioramas and stuff on their lawns and some people would even set up little haunted houses for people to go through and to this day I, I do miss having like a good Halloween activity to do with friends and family.
2: Well, that sounds like very nice memories.
1: Yeah, it was really great memories. It makes me happy that you asked the question, because thinking about that is very much like what gets me in the Halloween kind of mood.
3: Yeah, my story, I think, is pretty similar to Seth's in that I feel like Halloween was seen as something for kids, young kids, for the most part. So, you know, I trick-or-treated as a kid, of course. But I feel like I also kind of outgrew it... Fairly young, like, but definitely by seventh grade I was done. But I want to say it was maybe even earlier than that. The last time I can remember really getting into, like, a Halloween costume and being, like, really into it was that penguin costume when I was in fourth grade so I don't know I know I dressed up for the next few years but I don't remember like being super into those costumes I can't remember exactly what they were so I think that's probably around the same time that I stopped trick-or-treating too is it just felt like it was something for kids and like you're at that age when you kind of want to separate yourself from being a kid so you're like oh uh, that's for babies like that's kind of how I felt about Power Rangers, too, is, like, that was the first, like, big pop culture thing that came out that I was like, I'm not into this. Why am I not into this? I was like, oh, that must be for, like, children. And I was a very sophisticated (laughs) tween at this point.
1: That's very well put. I felt the same way at the time. Absolutely.
3: But, like, Seth, I got kind of excited by giving out the candy, because it felt, like, very grown up. And maybe it's, like, this rite of passage that doesn't get talked about enough. It's like, when you go from the treater to the treaty.
1: (laughs) You signed a treaty.
3: <laughs> yeah, because it's fun to be like, oh, now I'm too adult to be out there with you. I'm on this side and I have all the power. The power is candy. And, you know, it's fun and you get to look at everyone's costume. I mean, I enjoyed it and I liked having a bunch of candy, but like it was, it's just such a like hustle and bustle that it felt goal oriented and the goal was candy. And so I think it's kind of more fun. And that's kind of what I like to do now is like they have a big parade in West Hollywood during normal times. So it's fun to even just go walk around. And I don't often get super into a costume. I usually kind of last minute and just wear something I've worn before. There are years of exception.
2: I've seen you as Carrie from Sex and the City. (laughs) That was a long
3: time ago, but yes. That was one of the years I did get into it. Also, Shame None from Game of Thrones was some effort. But sometimes there's like a tiger onesie or a scream costume that I bought mainly to scare your baby.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Mission accomplished. I think
3: some of the fun of Halloween is just seeing what people are doing and kind of wandering around. And even as a teenager, probably as an older teen, I think we probably got together and watched scary movies. But we didn't go out. Like, I've never egged anyone's house, at least that I knew of. Like, no one went out and, like, caused havoc. Like, it was always very, like, tame and really just, like, left to kids to trick-or-treat.
2: Guys, our stories could not be more different!
3: (laughs) Why did I have a feeling...
1: That this was the case.
2: I trick-or-treated every year until they wouldn't let me anymore. (laughs) No, every single year from whenever I started to junior year in high school was the last time that I trick-or-treated. But I was planning to do it senior year, but I had show choir rehearsal. And I can't believe they had show choir rehearsal on Halloween, but they did. It was like a Wednesday or something. Did you not tell them
1: it was a religious holiday for you? (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> but I was so mad. But like for some reason, I like I had to go. And we always got a ten minute break. It was a two and a half hour practice, and we always got a ten or fifteen minute break. And I grabbed two of my show choir buddies, and I was like, "Here, put these on." They were like tiger ears from Disneyland or something. Like they were like silly like mouse ears or things like that. And I was like, "Just go to three houses with me," because <laughs> I was a senior in high school. I was like, "I'm not going to do this in college. It's my last year." You
3: definitely wore those ears on Halloween in college.
2: <laughs> Well, like at Halloween parties not trick-or-treating so we hit up three houses I think one of them no one answered and then the other two gave us some candy we didn't even have like bags
3: did they shame you <laughs>
2: they did not shame us and that's what I got to have two pieces of candy <laughs> in my senior year of high school but if I had anyone else to do plans with and like didn't have to go to this rehearsal then I would have wanted to trick-or-treat I loved it I loved it so much and I don't think the goal was candy that was certainly a goal but I liked dressing in costumes we've Um, noticed i liked finding out what costumes my friends would be wearing and like taking pictures and like that whole like it was like a fun surprise to be like oh you're dressed like that and i liked doing a social activity at night which you don't really get to do maybe friday saturday but like if halloween is on a wednesday like then you can go out with your friends on a wednesday night and it's totally acceptable and i felt like that was part of it especially in the younger years when you're like eight or ten or something like that like you really don't go out at night when you're that little like maybe to a friend's house for a sleepover but this was like going out and seeing the world at night and everything spooky and different and lit up and it was just like so exciting
1: so becky when you went out would it be with one of your parents or both of them or um were you left yeah. to your own devices mm,
2: later we were okay. we had to be in the neighborhood we always stayed in my neighborhood but it was like a good trick-or-treating spot anyway but i think when i was younger my mom definitely was like waiting at the sidewalk while we went up to get our candy. But I think when I was like 13, she let us go out and and beyond when I was 17.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I've got to say that nothing about this story really shocks me all that much.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And I get to go trick-or-treating with my baby who's three this year. And Yay! I'm so excited. I don't care if she has to wear masks and gloves and a hazmat suit with bell underneath it. <laughs> We're gonna go trick-or-treating. Oh no.
1: Disney's gonna make a COVID safe bell outfit. <laughs> it's gonna have like a bubble boy
2: type setup. <laughs> yes. I'm so excited. I'm very, very excited. And I think she's getting into it too. Like she'll see a pumpkin and she'll go, it's Halloween! It's very cute.
1: I'm now, very see, excited. Because I, like, I would presume some do some, some trick or treaters come by your apartment? No, on Halloween? none, none. none. Oh, okay. So I've I've
2: never been on the other side. Besides one year when, as an adult, you know, you go over to your friend's house and you watch like a scary movie. But before we did that, we passed out some candy. In her neighborhood, but I was like the whole time I was like, I want to be out there. (laughs) I don't want to be on this side. I want to be on the other side. See, because
1: talking about all this reminded me, Chris, of one of my favorite things about being the treaters and rather than the treatees is that you get to go shopping and try to get really good candy. Because it was like you wanted to be the house that like gave out the awesome candy. Because the worst possible version of trick-or-treating, the worst possible kind of trick-or-treating, is when you would go to all these houses, and they would give you fucking candy corn, or those fucking sugar pumpkins, or sweet tarts.
2: I like sugar pumpkins! (laughs)
1: <laughs> they're objectively they're objectively terrible and you only enjoy them because they're pure sugar.
2: Alright, and- we're not talking about Ghostbusters anymore. This is the topic now. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine.
1: I'm ready to throw down. Do on this. sugar
3: pumpkins hold up. They do. Not?
2: And candy corn.
3: Are they racist? It's going
1: down tonight.
2: <laughs> oh my god, we could talk forever, so we're gonna move on. <laughs> well, that was fun to hear you guys' stories.
1: <laughs> it was fun to hear your stories. Now shut up.
2: Yeah, now shut up. <laughs> Ghostbusters.
0: Who you gonna call
2: Ghostbusters! Ghostbusters was directed by Ivan Reitman. It was written by Harold Ramis and Dan Aykroyd. It stars Harold Ramis, Dan Aykroyd, Bill Murray, Ernie Hudson, Annie Potts, Rick Moranis and Sigourney Weaver. It was released June 8th, 1984. The budget was $30 million. The box office was 296 million worldwide.
1: Sounds like blockbusting made American audiences feel good. (laughs)
2: I'm gonna keep going back to that. (laughs) The movie was nominated for two Oscars, Best Original Song for Ghostbusters, which we're gonna talk about in a little bit, um, and Best Visual Effects. The reviews for Ghostbusters were fairly good um on rotten tomatoes right now it has a 97 percent uh rating i don't know if it was that high when um it came out but it was fairly positive roger ebert gave it three and a half stars saying it had sly dialogue and he said the movie is an exception to the general rule that big special effects can wreck a comedy rarely has a movie this expensive provided so many quotable lines Meanwhile, Peter Travers called the movie Irresistible Nonsense and likened it to The Exorcist starring Abbott and Costello so ghostbusters was inspired by dan Aykroyd's fascination with and belief in the paranormal i'm sure he's a ufologist uh he sure is (laughs) yeah it runs in the family his father wrote a book called a history of ghosts his mother has claimed she'd seen ghosts and his grandfather experimented with radios to contact the dead and his great grandfather was a renowned spiritualist
3: (laughs) biopic
1: biopic <laughs> i knew none of this and i instantly want to see that movie holy shit um like the ghost family <laughs> the, <Right>? the acroids <laughs> spook Haunters, a canadian family story <laughs>
2: is he canadian they're canadian right is he? i don't know
3: I think so because I heard him in a special feature say a boot.
2: Okay, well that's proof. That's enough. proof.
1: The case closed.
2: Ackroyd <laughs> <laughs> was also drawn to the idea of modernizing comedic ghost films from the mid twentieth century made by teams like Abbott and Costello. Ackroyd wrote the script. He intended to star in it with his SNL castmates Eddie Murphy and John Belushi. However, Belushi had an accidental overdose in nineteen eighty two and thus could not be in the film. Ackroyd's original seventy to eighty page script treatment was more serious in tone and it was intended to be scary. It took place in the future with many groups of Intergalactic Ghostbusters all at once. What? <laughs> <laughs> Hold for laughter. <laughs> Oh, my God. I have
1: to sit with this a second.
2: It was Ivan Reitman who suggested setting the whole movie on Earth so the budget wouldn't have to be like $200 million. (laughs) He's also responsible for making it more humorous and more grounded um, so that the sci-fi elements stood out. Several titles were considered for the film since the title Ghostbusters was legally restricted by Universal Studios because there was a 1970s children's show called The Ghostbusters. Some of the pitch titles were Ghost Stoppers, Ghost Breakers, and Ghost <laughs> so they started filming without an actual title. And then people that were watching the movie be filmed would just start shouting Ghostbusters. And so people on set would be like, you have to clear this title. Because <laughs> that's what people are already saying. <laughs>
1: Also, I did happen to look up on IMDb this other Ghostbusters cartoon. Not even a passing resemblance visually. And like, if you ran the characters in the real Ghostbusters series like through an opposite machine, they still wouldn't have any kind of relationship or rhyming at all.
2: I don't think anybody's going to confuse the two.
1: Yeah, I don't. Th- <laughs> I don't know if they would have gotten sued either. Really,
2: you guys, I watched
1: that Ghostbusters. We well, were supposed to watch <laughs> oh, <a> it?
2: Different...
1: <laughs> oh no! Oh
2: man. Ackroyd and Ramus wrote the script together. Ackroyd was the one who wrote funny situations and paranormal jargon while Ramus refined the jokes and dialogue. They decided that the three main guys would be written that Aykroyd is the heart, Murray is the mouth, and Egon is the brains. They described the three characters as the scarecrow, the lion, and the tin man. Cute. Ramus took Egon's first name from a Hungarian refugee he attended school with.
3: Well, that answers that, because I was wondering. <laughs>
2: So according to Ernie Hudson, an earlier version of the script gave Winston a much larger role. He was going to be an Air Force demolitions expert with an elaborate backstory. He agreed to the job for half his usual salary because he was really excited about the role. The night before shooting began, he got a new script and his role was greatly reduced because apparently the studio wanted to expand Murray's part, so Hudson's scenes were cut down. That is bullshit.
1: That is is some bullshit. bullshit. In
2: a 2014 interview, Hudson said of his Ghostbusters role, I love the character and he's got some great lines, but I felt like, like the guy was just kind of there. I'm very thankful that fans appreciate the Winston character, but it's always been very frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. Sigourney Weaver suggested that Dana become possessed by the demonic dog Zool. She also changed the role from a model to a musician because she says that her character of Dana could be pretty strict, but you know she has a soul because she plays the cello. She's got a lot of good ideas. So. She really
1: does, honestly. Why doesn't
3: she have a writing credit
1: on this movie? obviously It's a, a big part of the movie. That's so, it yeah. Is. <laughs> we'll is. We'll get into that later, but wow.
2: John Candy was offered the role of Louis Tully. Candy told Reitman that he did not understand the character and he wanted to portray Tully with a German accent with multiple German shepherds. The filmmakers thought there were already enough dogs in the movie. <laughs> so they cast Rick Moranis, who ad-libbed tons of his dialogue. Wow. Slimer was known as Onion Head Ghost because the puppet has an unpleasant smell.
3: <laughs> I was also
1: briefly known as Onion Head Ghost, by the way. <laughs> it's okay. Someday EDM music will come back in style, Chris.
2: <laughs> the Slimer design took six months and cost approximately $300,000. Oh my God. After struggling to complete a design due to ex- executive interference, special effects artist Steve Johnson, who previously worked on Poltergeist, he took at least three grams of cocaine and completed the final design based on Aykroyd and Ramis's wish for the creature to homage Belushi.
1: Mission accomplished. <laughs> first of all. Second of all, testament to the creative power of hard drugs. Let's <laughs> so everyone, kids, take notes.
3: Kids, don't. Don't do drugs. (laughs) Stay in school.
1: Okay, adults, take note. Trick or treat.
2: This is just fun trivia. Annie Potts was wearing the set dresser's prescription glasses for the whole shoot. (laughs) She couldn't see anything.
3: (laughs) Those were real.
2: Those were real glasses. She just grabbed them last minute right before she had to shoot, and she decided to wear them, and she ended up having to wear them the whole shoot.
1: That's also amazing because even as a kid i noticed like oh wow those glasses make our eyes look so much smaller it's because they were actual prescription glasses (laughs) they are that's fantastic i love that
2: so guys did you watch ghostbusters as a kid what is your ghostbusters history
3: are you asking when did bustin first start making us feel good
2: yes (laughs) i was ready for that off the cuff question
3: Well, I guess I'll answer it then. I was very young when I first started busting. When? Uh... <laughs>
1: <laughs> Did you like to bust alone, or was it with your friends? <laughs> was there a lot of ectoplasm? <laughs> Not at first, Becky. Usually when you first start busting, it's pretty dry. <laughs> Sometimes you bust in your dreams. <laughs>
3: <laughs> That's when they start calling you Slimer. God.
1: Chris, please, cut, cut this all out. No, this is the episode.
3: I was pretty young. I think I want to say around five when I probably started mm. enjoying the film and television series Ghostbusters. <laughs> there was a neighborhood child named Little Jesse, so named to differentiate him from Big Jesse. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm sorry, is this... <laughs> what?
1: <laughs> I love that you as a child were like, there's a neighborhood child. I've been told there's a neighborhood child here.
3: It was a neighborhood street and there was already a Jesse. so you need to differentiate the Jessies.
2: Wow, okay.
3: You cannot just have two Jessies. What kind of neighborhood did you live in, you heathen?
2: We used Jesse M and Jesse R. That's how we would do that.
3: We did not. Mm-hmm. We were not so sophisticated in, mm-hmm. in our little nook. I just remember, like, playing Ghostbusters with him, like, with toys. I think we probably pretended to be Ghostbusters. We watched the movies. And I I know, like, he was my neighbor at a certain point. So I know I was, like, pretty young when we started, like, watching it. And I know... I didn't find the movie, like, terrifying. But there were things that, like, kind of creeped me out. Like, the corpse cab driver part was, like, a lot for me at age, you know, five or six or whatever. Like, there were things that I was, like... I was at someone else's house watching this, and I was like, if my mom knew I was seeing a corpse cab driver, she would not be having it. But um, it was a little rebel. I think I was more into the cartoon as a kid, because I did not own the movie until much later. So I think I only saw the movies at someone else's house. But the cartoon I would watch, you know, regularly, however often it was on. I'm sure it was part of my afternoon lineup or Saturday morning lineup. And I had some of the toys, not a ton, like... I have had with, like, Ninja Turtles or Jurassic Park or some of those things, but I definitely had an Egon. I distinctly remember an Egon because he stuck around a long time. (laughs) I think I I might still have that somewhere, I don't know. (laughs) And I had someone known as Granny Gross, Mm -hmm. who is an old lady who then opens up into, like, a horrendous mouth, as most old ladies do. Yeah, I liked Ghostbusters. It was, yeah, it was just kind of part of the rotation of all the cartoons that I would watch. And then I became reacquainted with the Ghostbusters in high school when I bought the widescreen VHS. Because I kind of bought almost every movie that was in widescreen, which is not very many. So when something was in widescreen, I was like, better have it. And so I watched the first movie a few more times, and my friend Tiffany and I were like very into the Sigourney Weaver scenes where she's a demon and thought those were funny. Like that was like the kind of humor that appealed to us at like age 16 or something. So I was pretty familiar with this movie and then hadn't seen them for a while and then watched them last Halloween. So I had seen them recently.
1: I was a mega fan of Ghostbusters as a kid. Chris, like you, I definitely remember watching it like with neighbors. Like that was definitely one of my earliest experiences watching it. I, I p- probably third or fourth grade.
3: Was it a little neighbor or a big neighbor?
1: Neither little nor big.
3: Medium neighbor, okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Grande. He was average (laughs) size J. But yeah, I know I also watched Ghostbusters with like family members of mine. It was a big part of my childhood. I had many of the Ghostbusters toys. It wasn't as, like, completist as I was with things like Batman or Power Rangers later on. There were Ghostbusters toys that I really coveted and wanted forever. Like, I wanted their headquarters. The fire station, there was a whole fire station playset that was, like, two feet tall. And I had a bat cave, but I wanted that Ghostbusters headquarters.
3: I remember. Remember that
1: because um, the headquarters playset had like a working fire pole that the action figures could slide down. I remember
3: the commercial made a big deal about that. It
1: made such a big deal out of it, and that changed my life. Like the concept of sliding down a fire pole <laughs> was such an exalted and mysterious experience <laughs> for me. <laughs>
0: Ghostbusters!
1: It's the real Ghostbusters Firehouse playset.
0: Bagman, our firehouse is haunted. No way. Oh no! I've been goo. Thinging goes to the stadium.
3: The real Ghostbusters, each sold separately, assembly Ah. required.
1: I watched that movie all the time growing up. I know I had the proton pack, like the the backpack Mm. with the plasma cannon thing on it, I had the trap. The rolly mm-hmm. toaster looking thing that went along the floor, and you would hit like a pneumatic foot pedal, and the trap would open up, and like you could like throw one of the action, the ghost action figures inside it. So, more than with the action figures, I remember like playing Ghostbusters with friends of mine. And we would, like, inhabit the role of being Ghostbusters. And with some other franchises, like with X-Men or something, I would have particular characters who I wanted to be. But with Ghostbusters, I just liked the conceit of being a Ghostbuster myself. And I was like, Seth the Ghostbuster. <laughs> I feel like, yeah,
3: that the franchise somehow lends it to, to like, anyone can bust a ghost.
1: It does, and I'll I'll talk more about that because I kind of noticed that too, especially rewatching it now and kind of understood that more. Um, but definitely, as a kid, it was like a participatory kind of feeling, um, and I and I appreciate that in retrospect because with a lot of other things, like it's not like I can easily imagine myself being a Ninja Turtle, even though I know I was a Ninja Turtle for at least one Halloween. I know I was a Ghostbuster for at least one Halloween, and probably, like, we also had block parties in our neighborhood where people would, like, dress up in costumes and they'd have costume contests. So I I loved Ghostbusters, like, in, in that sense, too, as something that something kind of theatrical and performative that I could always have around to play with and that would be also be a common vocabulary with other kids my age you know and everyone knew you know like how to play Ghostbusters and just as far as like the the rest of my history with it it's become a kind of comfort food movie for me over the years and I usually watch Ghostbusters and Ghostbusters 2 like around once a year Sometimes more than that, like, if I'm really feeling shitty, I just pop it on um, as a kind of comfort food movie.
3: I had totally forgotten that you could, that there were all those toys that let you be a Ghostbuster, but as soon as you mentioned them, I know I played with those toys, so that is why I remember playing Ghostbusters. I just didn't remember that we had actual physical things that would enable this. I also remembered a large childhood trauma... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which was, I had a Ray action figure as well as the Egon, and he fell into the ocean. While I was on my boat, well, Uh (laughs) not my boat, my family's (laughs) boat playing with him. And I I distinctly remember watching him sink and being like,
1: no! (laughs) That was your
2: heart of the ocean.
3: Yeah, it was. (laughs) I'm hoping that Bill Paxton is looking for it now.
1: (laughs) Oh, buddy, I've got a couple pieces of bad news on that one.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I definitely watched both of these movies growing up. The 1984, like the original one, I was a little too young. So the one that I would always... Watch was two, so I've actually only watched one like a few times versus two that I would put on all the time, and I know it much more than I know one. One also just like struck me as a little bit more for adults, like there was like women in sexy clothing, you know, and just like more. It was darker than the second one, so I think I would just gravitated towards that one. But I definitely like the movies, like I watch them. Saw the second one probably in theaters, but I didn't own any of the toys. And it's got to be because they're marketed to boys. I remember the toys like Chris, you sent a bunch of the toys like images. And I definitely remember them because, I, you know, I liked toy stores and would go through the aisles, but I didn't own any of them.
3: Did you go to the Forbidden Boys aisle?
2: <laughs> Sometimes I would wander in there looking for the stuffed animals. Um, <laughs> they were
3: very gendered back then. They were very,
2: like very gendered, aisles. and I think it's really interesting. And things are still gendered today, but I think parents are more open to letting their daughters or sons play with dolls, play with trucks, play with action figures. I think more so than before, big companies are are willing to put out more female characters. So I, I think it's really interesting because I was looking through these dolls thinking like, or the action figures being like, why didn't I own any of this? I watch those movies. Like I know what a Ghostbuster is. Yet no, didn't own any of it.
3: Yeah, I remember watching two more as a kid also, and then I was just more familiar with one as a teenager. But yeah, I definitely remember also that, like, something about the pink slime, I feel like, like appeals to kids. Like, it looks like it'd be fun to play with.
1: Well, and it's also kind of similar family to, of gross-out substances to, like, a Nickelodeon gack or Nickelodeon slime. So that, yeah. that absolutely fit. What did you guys
2: think about watching Ghostbusters as an adult?
3: I mean, I watched it a year ago, so I knew... Pretty much what my reaction would be. I haven't grown up that much over the last year. I enjoy watching these movies. Uh, That's kind of the most I have to say about it in a broad sense. I have a lot of, like, specific things to say. But, like, I don't have any brilliant takeaways from rewatching them. Like, ever, really. Like, the movies don't change. It's not a movie where your relationship to it changes over time. Or you notice... Like, new things that you wouldn't have noticed as a kid, really. I mean, maybe some, like, vulgar jokes or something from Bill Murray. But to me, it just kind of hits a beat, which is, like, a comedic, like, funny bone beat. And that's it. So I don't always enjoy, like, a kind of goofy, broad comedy, but I do enjoy these movies still, both of them. So I think that's a compliment, like, from me, <laughs> you know, that, like, really this, this kind <laughs> of, like, s- silly movie, I still enjoy it. I don't think either of them is a great film, but they're very enjoyable films, and I like them.
1: I am hard-pressed to disagree with Chris, which is also a rarity on this <laughs> podcast. <laughs>
3: thought I, that was Zool disagreeing with me for a second there. <laughs>
1: Like, I, I don't know how much longer this episode can go on if we can't generate some kind of controversy. I still very much enjoy both these movies. Um, they've I've, I've seen them each so many times that I have vacillated between both pulls of having been overexposed and being sick of it and taking time away and rediscovering my enjoyment for it. A couple times I've gone around that circuit by now, I think. I still think there's a lot about both of these movies that really, really works as... Comedy. I think there are overall relatively few parts of them that work as horror, but rewatching them this time, those few moments really stood out as being as well done as they really are. And I mean, we can go through the specific things we liked about both of these movies in a little bit, but overall, I, I think for the time and Kind of after all this time. They both do a pretty good job of balancing comedy and horror. I definitely would agree with you that the first movie thinks it's aimed more at adults, and the second movie knows that it's aimed and going to be enjoyed more by kids. Watching them now, it definitely crossed my mind a bunch of times. Like, ways that they could have approached the material or things that they could have done to make a very adult-oriented Ghostbusters in a way that I think could have been hilarious and and that also, I think, could have been a lot scarier. But again, like, kind of understanding the audience that they were very clearly aiming for and obviously that they got because it was such a success, I think they're both still really well well done. And at this point, I kind of see them both as really one movie. (laughs) Like, I don't really see Ghostbusters 2 as, like, a sequel so much as just kind of literally a continuation of what was going on in the first movie. And I don't actually mean that to knock it, because I think there are a lot of ways in which it could have been a very obvious and terrible cash grab, and I don't think it is. I think they're both really fun to watch. There are a lot of things about both of them, and a lot of things especially about the kind of smaller characters and smaller roles in these movies that are really, really fucking funny. And even the stuff about it that I think kind of holds up least in terms of the effects, um, I kind of still find charming
2: now. (laughs) I didn't like it. (laughs) Oh no! She's lying. I really didn't like it. Really? (laughs) No! Oh no! Okay, that's kind of a lie. I really enjoyed and appreciate 50% of what I saw. And the other half did not hold up for me. I know. I'm getting stares.
3: (laughs) No, I'm just curious. I don't know. It feels like such a a thing of its own piece that it's like you either like it or you don't like it. And I'm wondering how you half like it. Both.
2: I don't think
1: think you can half embrace this. I'm sorry.
2: I think you can and I am. (laughs) (laughs) i mean should we just get into things i didn't like first yeah okay i didn't like vinkman i didn't like bill murray's character it's not that i don't like bill murray but his character like really did not work for me has some funny one-liners for sure but he's just such a fucking creep (laughs) in this movie and he's supposed to be charming and it doesn't work like it's not charming anymore it's just like he's going where he's not invited he's like kind of harassing this woman who keeps saying like i'm not into you even though by the end they're like together that's not what
1: she says and he's not harassing her he's very openly flirting with her
2: no, but it's like crossing a line as a as a modern day viewer it did not feel endearing
0: hey! get a little tired of this you volunteered didn't you We're paying you, aren't we? Yeah, but I didn't know you were going to be giving me electric shocks. What are you trying to prove here, anyway? I'm studying the effect of negative reinforcement on ESP ability. The effect? I'll tell you what the effect is! It's pissing me off! Well, then maybe my theory is correct. You can keep the five bucks. I've had it. I will, mister! You may as well get used to that. It's the kind of resentment that your ability is going to provoke in some people. Do you think I have it, Dr. Venkman? You're no fluke, Jennifer.
2: He was more like a weird womanizing creep. Versus, like, a laid-back straight man, which I think is when he plays the laid-back straight man, like, works better than when he gets to be, like, this creep. He acts like a creep in a lot of it. Like, in the first scene that we see him and he's doing this science experiment where I'm not really sure if it's even a real science experiment. I'm actually, like, confused. Like, is he an actual, like, scientist? Let's address that separately,
1: because that's its own like thread running through these movies. Vingman has two doctorates, but they're in psychology and parapsychology, which is not actually an academic field of study. So, in the realist terms, n- no, Vingman is not a real scientist. But he's at all.
2: pretending to be one.
1: He's only pretending to be one for the purposes of flirting with that woman.
2: But that's why it's confusing, and I was confused. It's like the other two are scientists, or they what? act sciency. But like, what? I'm not saying he but- has to act like all like stuck up or something. But like, I didn't actually understand—is he a scam artist?
1: Yes, he is, and the story very clearly sets up that he's a bullshitter, and that's in large part why their business is successful because he's the bullshitter. But then they also have actual scientists. But why on are their they team. friends
2: with him? Like, why are they colleagues with him? You know what I mean? Like, where did they meet? Were they all college roommates? Like,
1: what I don't understand is why that's necessary to understand
2: because i didn't like him (laughs) and i I didn't understand him i think
1: you're very much applying a 21st century like me too prism to a person (laughs) who's like flirting with women
2: not just flirting with women like he is he goes where he's not invited she's like don't bring that guy and then he shows up anyway he's not a very good friend to them like he convinces ray to like put a third mortgage on his house so that they can like have their business like he's just like not like a good person and I'm not saying he has to be, but just, like, I didn't like him. I didn't find him likable.
3: Okay. okay. <clears throat> I'm here, too. <laughs> I am in the middle. (laughs) I definitely responded the way that Becky responded to him on some level where I watched his behavior and realized that it was not appropriate by today's standards and probably would not make it into, like, a mainstream movie as one of the protagonists' behavior. But, like, I feel like these movies are coming out of, like, the meatballs and... Animal House, Stripes, like Torkies. this, like yeah. Didn't
2: Ivan Reitman direct some of those? Yes, yes. <laughs> That's what I'm saying.
3: It's like it's that comedy team. So I think like that was just their brand of humor at the time, and it's probably what people would have expected from Bill Murray. And I think that he sells it in a way that like I don't really find him likable. Like he is like I would kill him if he was like my friend. <laughs> quote-unquote friend, or, like, I had to spend a lot of time especially if I was a co-worker with him. I would kill him, because he's <laughs> like, counterproductive. He's, like, constantly, like, doing the thing that's setting everyone back, or deceiving someone, or whatever. But, like, I also feel like, I, I, I don't know if we get exactly a sense of where these guys met, but I feel like they were either college roommates, or, like, in their, like, early 20s were, like, friends. And you do have those friends that you kind of just get stuck with. In life, I would like have liked to have
2: known. Like, be- I think it's because I just didn't understand his character. I get that he's unconventional, but is he also very smart? But he acts weird, or is he a scam artist? If he's a scam artist, why are these legitimate scientists working with him?
1: I also don't think they're very legitimate scientists, Becky. Like, they seem smart the- though. Well, <laughs> but here's the thing, and 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 I think the movie very kind of deliberately does not show any of these people as quote-unquote very like legitimate scientists like really in the first movie the that that opening scene with that fake experiment is the closest thing to a scientific experiment that is ever conducted by the ghostbusters in the first movie and then in the second movie uh Egon who was supposed to be the paragon of scientific uh, virtue and knowledge and uh, expertise, does another psychological torture experiment where he has two people in a relationship like locked in a room with each other and he just leaves them there, turns up the temperature and tries to get them to start a fight with each other so he can get like a a ghost meter reading off of them. I think part part of the story of this is that none of these people are legitimate scientists doing legitimate upfront scientific work. So I think that's... I think there is less that is dissimilar between these characters than you're saying here.
3: Yeah, I think, I mean, I think Becky's, like, issues stem from the fact that this movie is a little bit sloppy in its characterizations and, like, story setup, which I'll probably get into more later. But, in general, I don't think it, like, really lays out a lot of things super clearly. But, I mean yeah i agree with seth that they're all kind of bad fringe scientists like egon is really really smart it's clear that he knows this shit but i think he's also kind of a tunnel vision scientist where he just like doesn't see anything outside of the science completely
1: single-minded absolutely
3: and then ray is kind of just a doofus and like
2: he at least seems smart even if he's a doofus the other two are seen as smart and and bill murray is not seen as smart
3: I think he's smart. He's just mischievous. Like, he's he's cleverly sort of setting up this, like, weird experiment, I guess, to meet women. You know, that, that takes some <laughs> smarts, I guess.
1: And I mean, It's creative. Where I want to meet you both halfway is that Venkman is fucking insufferable, and I would never go for that. But I think, or at least how I see the movie play out and how I see these characters play out in the movies... I think it's very clear, from the first time that Dana Barrett, Sig- Sigourney Weaver's character, meets Vankman that they both have chemistry with each other. It, it, I I think it's very clear, at least in their body language, and that the dialogue is flirtier than I think is being implied. I I do not think that this is some kind of like sexual harassment situation that... That he's like subjecting her to, um, I don't know, and and maybe maybe that point is only strong by way of comparison of a character that comes in the second Ghostbusters movie, who we'll talk about later. But I I I don't know. I, I think there's always danger in trying to like look at these things through through a 21st century prism. When I think the easier explanation is that. He's an insufferable jackass, but these two people are into each other, and they both know it. I didn't
2: see that.
3: Yeah, I I think I mostly agree with Seth, is that she has a lot of outs if she really didn't like him at all. Like, when she sees him, like, she's coming out of, like, the orchestra with the guy like and he's like doing the little like steppy dance. Dance, Yeah. (laughs) Like she goes over to him and she looks happy to see him. And so I think it's more like this is still coming out of a time when it's like inappropriate for a woman to show that she is. Like like she expects to be pursued and she has to like play this game of hard to get a little bit. Like that I think that is just kind of like the dynamic is like like, the, the man comes on too strong and then the woman pushes back. And I think that's just kind of, like, how the dynamic was in a lot of ways. Maybe not always in real life, but I, I feel like that's how it, it often is portrayed in, like, film and stuff. So I feel like she does tell him to get out and stuff, but I feel like a lot of, like, she's playing with him as much as he's playing with her, a lot of it, and and that they're doing a bit of a dance together. And I also, like, think, like, this movie is kind of making fun of the fact, like, I mean, they are scientists, but they're doing this, like, ridiculous science that most scientists would say is not really science, so...
1: And they get kicked off of the college that their headquarters is in at, at the start of the movie for that exact
2: reason. So but they're, they're right. Time. There are ghosts. So aren't we supposed to be like, "Haha, they're actually very smart." But are they? I feel they
3: like they kind of lucked into it. Like, I feel like they're more, it's like they're all three outcasts and they only have, like, each other to, like, kind of validate each other.
2: I guess I just didn't like Finkman, even though he has funny one-liners uh, on a whole. I did not like that character. And the movie itself, and I'm going to get to things I liked, so there are things I liked. <laughs> but, like, the movie itself just brought up so many questions to me. Like, why does everybody get amnesia? <laughs> Like, there are people that see ghosts. Like, the the first people that see ghosts aren't even the Ghostbusters. They're other people. And, and yet people keep telling the Ghostbusters, like, you are crazy. And I was like, the other people can verify this. <laughs> like, things like that. And that's a whole thing in the second movie. But, like, in the first movie, even, like, other people are seeing ghosts. And yet they're still like, Uh, you're crazy. Well,
1: but people claim to see ghosts in real life. And are addressed as if they're crazy people for the fact that they completely firmly believe that they have seen ghosts.
3: Well, I think this movie is taking place in kind of like a universe where like that's like when you see a ghost you're like well that's weird and then you go on about your day like I think it's kind of trying to like be the movie where like New York City is like the big bad city so like New Yorkers are just kind of like oh another New York problem kind
1: of. I actually think that's a really important point is like how New York both of these movies are I mean even the first one is very much like Mm -hmm. a New York movie and every single character is at least in part defined by their New Yorkness, but it also is very much the old New York. 80s New before York. Right 70s, wing, 80s. Yeah, yeah, before New York had right-wing fascist governors who cleaned all the fun out of town.
2: Also, <laughs> what are ghosts in this movie?
1: <laughs> <laughs> and what is bustin'? <laughs> this is now a question in the pantheon of how does one encounter a xenomorph? <laughs> what
2: are ghosts? But like, <laughs> are ghosts... <laughs> mythological beings are they people that used to be alive and now they're dead they're
1: a free floating are they monsters
2: like they're everything
1: the answer to your question
2: (laughs) is yes but that's why there's like like, look, it's just, like, it brought up so many questions of I was asking. it, Like, are they trapping people's loved ones? These people used to be alive. What did Slimer used to look like when he was a real person? Becky, sadly,
1: is... <laughs> that was what Slimer used to look like.
2: This is it what... was like Jim <laughs> There you go.
1: <laughs> this is what real cinema does, is it leaves us with more questions than answers.
2: But that's a question I had. It was, like, they're trapping ghosts in a wall. Can't ghosts just go through the wall? We see them going through the wall. Like, how do they really trap them? I have a them? question.
3: Did Becky and I switch bodies? <laughs> She's being, like, Miss Logic over there. And I'm like, whatever. (laughs) I'm usually the one, like, critiquing the
2: logic.
1: Chris is like, yeah, it's ghost jail. What of it?
2: Half the time, (laughs) they're a Muppet, and the other time, they're monsters. And the other, like, and other times, then they're, like, going into people's bodies. Like, what are they? Like, what are the rules?
3: Well, I mean, there's all that stuff with, like, other dimensions. So I feel like it's kind of, like, a thing, like, yes, some ghosts are dead people, but others have like come from other dimensions and maybe right. that's a dead version of a something from like another planet or something. But I agree that maybe it could be made clearer.
2: <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> Well, but also, okay, but like this is, this does kind of get to a larger, not issue, just the thing I noticed about this movie, where there's kind of a little bit of a class critique in it, where I think the Ghostbusters are put forward as a kind of working man's. Science And even literally so in the sense that they're kicked off of the private university and they're forced to create a business to prove their knowledge and their expertise and their skills to people. And they're forced to literally like sell that to the public and they successfully do so. Personally, I like the university. They gave us money and facilities. We didn't have to produce anything. You've never been out of college. You don't know what it's
0: like out there. I've worked in the private sector. They expect results. For whatever reasons, Ray, call it fate, call it luck, call it karma. I believe that everything happens for a reason. I believe that we were destined to get thrown out of this dump. For what purpose?
1: To go into business for ourselves. And so, like, a thing that I noticed about this movie beyond just the kind of 80s-ness of the series, just beyond the fact that it was made in the 80s, there's something very conservative about this story and about these characters, and it's a very Reaganomics kind of story. In the first movie in Ghostbusters 1, the only human bad guy is from the Environmental Protection Agency.
3: (laughs) I really thought that was funny, too. Actually, either Dan Aykroyd or Ivan Reitman... (laughs) pointed out in one of the features like I think that was made more recently that like it's very Reagan to have the EPA be the bad guy <laughs> in a movie right
2: and the whole yeah. thing is about like starting your own business, business. bootstraps and- pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and
1: also in a very New York fashion it does kind of hold a lot of esteem and respect for cops and I feel like there's a way in which the Ghostbusters are kind of put forward as, like, the good, humane kind of cops, because the the kind of subhuman lower class that they're going after are, like, supernatural ghosts rather than, like, p- just poor people and Black people. Um, <laughs> but there's something about the fact that The Ghostbusters' main job, counter to the idea of busting ghosts, is imprisoning ghosts. It kind of rhymes with history to me in a way now that these movies came out just before the real breakthrough of mass incarceration in this country, and the collective political notion that all of our problems have to do with crime, that all of our problems can be solved by locking up the people who we view as criminals because of their very existence. And in this movie, ghosts are seen as a threat just because of their existence, not even necessarily because of anything they do to haunt people. They're seen as problematic because they're ghosts. Well, because
3: they're causing trouble. They're rowdy, and they're, like, loud, and, you know, like, not respecting, like, Slimer, for example, is, like, not respecting polite society.
1: Yeah. And literally, he gets, like, where the place that he's haunting is this luxury hotel, and, like, that's the the Ghostbusters' first paying job. I don't necessarily hold that against the movie, I don't necessarily hold that against the filmmakers. I have heard like other interviews with Ivan Reitman and folks, and they do kind of understand a bit now in retrospect how much some aspects of the story like that were infected or inflected by the politics of the time. But especially watching it now, especially in the context of like cultural conversations around police reform and thing and prison abolition and closing down prisons in the first movie, the prison they get sent to is Rikers Island Prison. People in real life have died and suffered slow psychological torture, and activists are now trying to close Rikers Island Prison now in 2021. It was a weird way that this movie rhymed with history, even though this movie is very much not taking place in the reality of the 80s and is not trying to tell a realistic story. It was just kind of an interesting thing that stuck out to me this time.
3: Yeah, I hadn't thought of it quite in those terms, but I definitely did know notice like sort of the general vibe of that yeah i mean the movie is really about cleaning up the streets and that you can identify like who the troublemakers are because they look different than you like it 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 is very kind of black and white in that way
2: i want to say something nice i think this movie is incredibly amazing at production design the props i love the premise of this movie like I think it is a brilliant premise. I think it's incredibly influential for being a comedy as opposed to something that's just like straight sci-fi and like or thriller or something. And I just the Proton Packs and the, I don't know the name of it, the thing you throw. The trap. The yeah. trap, the whole thing where you have to work together to, like, trap the ghosts, the, what is it, don't cross the wires or something? Don't cross the, the streams. streams. No, the streams. Oh, my God. And, like, just everything having to do with that, with the car, with the firehouse, like, those were all amazing decisions that make this movie so iconic. And I think that part of it is brilliant. Maybe that's, like, connected to marketing, I guess? But, like, I, I just love those images. Like, I Not love... just
1: marketing. I mean, I, I do think that... One of the most successful things about it is the world building of it. Yes, okay. Because like, I, I would agree with what you said earlier, like, I, I do think there is messiness in the way that the characters are laid out, but for me, the strength of the world building and the strength of that kind of atmosphere and tone of it is enough to carry me through.
2: Yeah, like, I would put the proton packs up there with, like, the DeLorean time machine as far as, like, super iconic things. The second you see them, you're like, you know what that is. It's just so inventive and creative, and that part really stood out to me as somebody who was trying to see it like for the first time. Like I would be very like in awe of that seeing seeing that for the first time in theaters. Like if I was an adult in theaters in 1984, I would have been like all over this, I think. Because I would have been like, wow, like look at that. Like what are they doing? It's so exciting.
1: Also, it's like I think that if they had tried to make anything about this more grounded in any kind of realism, if they had actually tried to make these into, like, more rigorous scientist characters, this movie and that the amazing pitch for this movie could have been turned into such a boring fucking movie. (laughs) Like, I, especially in retrospect, especially watching it this time, it is a genius concept for a movie, and I do think, like, the world building that they did does a very good job of, like, putting that premise through.
3: Yeah, I was inclined to not give this movie very much credit for its, like, story, any kind of, like, writing innovation, but I did kind of realize, like, this was probably pretty groundbreaking as, like, a genre mashup. I don't know if it totally invented horror comedy. There was probably some stuff like that from the like seventies, but especially like the family, like the blockbuster family horror comedy or sci fi comedy. Like it definitely, like I can't really think of a film that was like this from before.
2: Before nineteen eighty four, I feel like if there were
1: any horror comedies, the comedy was unintentional. (laughs) (laughs) Like it was just a shitty horror movie that was funny. That's true. Or
2: like a B movie that, like, oh, it's funny because they died in this gruesome way, but.
3: But yeah, I feel like that's usually like a very adult oriented thing. So at least I think like this if didn't totally invent, like definitely popularized a movie that like Men in Black would not exist without this movie.
1: Yeah, and it's funny because I, I had never made the like Abbott and Costello Laurel and like that kind of Comedy duo comparison of those old style things, but I feel like that would be the closest analog in film history to that kind of genre mashup, but they're not really appreciated as that because they're so directly tied to the identity of like the comedy duo that led them. I mean, I'm sure also to a large extent those genre conventions weren't as clearly articulated and formulated as they are now. I I do think you know, especially looking back on it now decades later, it was a groundbreaking movie, especially for a blockbuster.
3: Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, I think what you guys are touching on a little bit is an issue... I don't know if it was a total issue, and it's... Like, I just mentioned Men in Black, which I can't remember if we ever mentioned Ghostbusters when we talked about Men in Black, but, like, the whole thing of guys with a magical device that does a thing to trap weird mythical creatures. Like, it's Mm -hmm. very much the same kind of formula. And our problem with that movie was also that, like, the guys didn't have fully fleshed out lives. Like, we didn't know anything about, like, their current lives, background, family, friends. And that's kind of the issue I had with this is, like, I'm like, it feels like they're all, like, 20. (laughs) Like, they're all, like, single guys in New York. But I'm like, these guys are 40?
2: One of them's got to be divorced.
3: (laughs) Yeah, like, they don't have any, like... Girlfriends, kids, ex wives, fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters. It's like they exist in a vacuum. You know, it's like, it's fine that, like, we get the sense that they're kind of each other's family, but this f- script is very thin on, like, developing characters that actually feel, like, fully lived in. And, like, I don't think we even see, do we see where any of them live or anything like that? Peter,
2: we see his place in the second, I know for sure. I think we see his place in the first because I think Dana. Comes over, or am I thinking of the second? I don't know. I
1: would completely agree with that. Like I said earlier, part of the advantage of having such strong world building in it is that that can help the plot kind of carry you through, and because it helps, you know, like the immediate challenges of the moment kind of override, which I think they would any, anyway if what we're talking about is a 300 foot marshmallow man invading downtown New York. I don't know. I'm, I'm conflicted on it because I, again, like I said earlier, I absolutely would love there to be a more dramatically fleshed out, more evolved writing-style version of Ghostbusters, you know, where these people are adults who have had clear failures and successes in their lives and who have some some road on those tires, you know? And it it does, in a lot of ways, feel like these characters should be in their early to mid-twenties, maybe? You know, like, graduate student age-ish? like that really is who they all feel like as human beings like honestly they remind me almost of like TAs that we would meet back in back in undergrad college um you know and and again i i don't think at the time that the age of casting in movies was as tightly controlled as it kind of is now, and there wasn't necessarily an expectation of, you know, like identical uh age number between this like character on the page and the character on the screen. But I can definitely see how that would like come through and be a little bit off putting.
3: Yeah, it's not necessarily something that you miss while watching the movie, at least not maybe the first couple times, but and, like, I'm not asking for anything that's, like, you know, taking up a ton of screen time, but just, like, the basic thing that most blockbusters do, which would give them, like, an ex-wife that has, like, one scene, so you just get get a sense that this person has had a history. Like, what have they been doing for 20 years? You know
2: what I like about the second, and maybe I'm getting ahead, but I like that we see them split up. Yeah. And we see, like what venkman does on his own oh he goes and does this weird talk show about you know scammy psychics or whatever Mm -hmm. and we see that ray has like an occult bookstore and that egon is doing weird science experiments like it, it that gave me some backstory to be like oh this is a little bit more detail about each one of these guys
3: yeah i think the second one actually weirdly does a better job of like character building than the first one
1: does Well, but I also think that the first one does a better job of showing them ghost-busting than the second one does. (laughs) Like, the second one relies more on, like, slime to save them, and, like, in the second one it seems like the ghosts more often have the upper hand than in the first one. Um,
3: we'll get to the second we'll one we'll get to the second
1: one. but I also again, to me that that kind of goes back to how I very much view these two movies as of the same piece. When I consider it as like two parts of just one story, then those kinds of things about like the characterization in one or the plot in the other, I don't know it doesn't it doesn't make them stick out as much for me.
2: So I'm kind of not too into the main three guys. And I feel like Winston is wasted as a character. But I love everyone else. (laughs) I love them. Sigourney Weaver is luminous. Rick Moranis... Literally, at times. <laughs> yes. Can we talk
1: about Sigourney Weaver and nothing else ever,
2: ever? Yes, I'll get to other people. I just want to say Rick Moranis is amazing. Annie Potts is great. I love everyone else in the movie besides the main people. But Sigourney Weaver is just like... God, what a great catch Again, for Hollywood. I, just I like She's this, just wonderful. I think this would have
1: been the first movie I ever saw her in. And... From the first moment I ever saw her on screen I was like who is this magical
2: woman? She's like Amazonian, she's got this big hair. She's like so natural. She reminds me a little bit of um of Gina Davis. Mm-hmm. Um, that just mm-hmm. she's just so natural. Like, but yeah, no very, what distinct. She's doing, very distinct. Very distinct. Very distinct But like very yeah. natural, maybe because they're both tall too. But like, and they just feel like women. Like so many of a lot of the movies today, I feel like cast like really young, whether it's like a 22 year old playing a woman. But like, these were like women. <laughs> these were like mid thirties, maybe even late thirties, like women with jobs and careers and like, big builds, like, they just felt like real women, not, like, little girls pretending to be women. And she's just, like, so sexy when she needs to be sexy, so, like, real when she needs to be real. And she's
1: to me, she's the most alive thing on screen every moment that she's on screen. Like, she brings she and Rick Moranis to me both bring so much like, verve and life to every moment they're in.
3: Yeah, it's weird, because I mean, I have no problems with their characters. Like, I feel like those two are fully developed, like, in a way that I, you know, didn't really think the Ghostbusters were. (laughs)
1: Literally, Dana Barrett has a conversation with her mom. And that happens the moment before the monster takes her. (laughs) And actually, that was, for me, and I noted a couple other ones, for me, that was one of the scariest moments of the whole thing.
2: Oh, was it when the ghost, like, she's sitting and they grab her? Yeah,
1: so she sits down and it's a very, very long scene of her just, like, sitting in a chair in her apartment having a conversation with her mom. And then, like, you can tell that she's getting impatient and tired of her mom just going on and on about some shit. And she's like, okay, mom, great to talk to you. Love you. Bye-bye now. And basically, the moment after that happens, she's like, "What's this grumble coming from the closet door?" And then monster hands explode from her easy chair. That was always so grasped and enveloped her whole body, and then drag her in the chair across the whole apartment into the closet. That was such a scary moment for me. It was, <laughs> and
2: it and it worked. It felt very poltergeist, which is the same special effects guy. Like it felt like Nightmare on Elm Street, like a legitimately like horrific part in. the this movie that was great.
1: To me, the only scary, the only really scary things that happen in this movie happen to and around Dana Barrett. <laughs>
3: mm-hmm. Yeah, I do like the opening of this movie, I think sets it up well with the librarian and she's like going downstairs. And so I really liked that opening because it did I feel like, that too. like it ends up kind of on a funny note, but it starts, like, as if this could be a real horror movie. And I really liked the way that that started. And, like, I think this movie works best when it kind of really leans hard into horror. And, like, so much of it is pretty campy. Like, when you finally meet, like, Gozer and stuff, it's, like, that's not frightening. (laughs) Like, it's just kind of silly. Yeah,
1: which is weird, because, again, like, one of my other biggest notes for me is, like, the monster dogs fucked me up when I was a kid. (laughs) The they
3: desi- do not look so good
2: now. No, they do not. The,
1: no, they look very <laughs> rudimentary now, especially in terms of the motion, but the design of them is very fucking scary. That's sure. true. Sure. Um, sure. And it's like, it reminds me of, I actually think it was influential, in a, uh, influential in a lot of ways for video game character monsters. Um, And for, like, especially uh, character designs in horror video games, which became a huge thing when we were growing up. But yeah, for me, like, even the earlier on haunting scene of Dana Barrett, when the eggs on her counter start cooking and she opens up the refrigerator, Mm -hmm. as a kid, the idea of opening up a refrigerator and seeing monsters inside it... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was like, yeah. no, I was not made aware that this was a possibility. I'm sorry.
3: But yeah, it has a campiness. Like when you see it now, you're like, oh, all right. Oh, and it's,
1: it... it's got total, it's totally campy at the same time that it's conceptually scary.
3: And it just looks like she opens the door and finds like an 80s music video.
2: It's
3: like Rick Astley in there. She's been Rick Rolled.
1: <laughs> to your exact point, it's like once they fully reveal the actual bad guy movie monster. It's David a,
3: Bowie in like a little more drag than yeah, usual. It's
1: <laughs> Aladdin Sane in an <laughs> even more coked out version. And she was probably definitely a member of Prince's band at some yeah. point, at least.
2: It's very memorable. I don't know if it works, <laughs> but it's memorable for sure. Like the same with the State Puff Marshmallow Man. Like that was an Aykroyd's like first draft of his script. Like he wanted... That's the only thing he a can a Marshmallow <laughs> Man. Like, pretty much, it was like, they wanted it. They wanted to, like, figure out how to get this Marshmallow Man into this movie. So they figured out a way. I always thought that the Marshmallow Man was, like, a real brand that I just wasn't aware of.
1: Me too. Me too.
2: <laughs> but apparently they're, like, in shots of the movie. Like, there's, like, marshmallows on the counter. So they do, like, plant it. But, like, in my head, I'm like, oh, it's. I guess it's just, like, a real brand that I'm just not aware of. I
3: know. I always, I was like, how have I missed this brand? like because they just say it like oh it's the yeah. of marshmallow yeah they man. just say it. It's I mean it's clearly like kind of modeled on Pillsbury Doughboy. Right. But like it feels... more the, the Michelin
1: man, yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
3: But like, I wish that there had been like a TV commercial that like really calls attention to it or something so yeah. that you knew because it kind of like you don't really see those
2: Yeah. Like, I agree. I, I
3: even I've watched this movie how many times and I don't think I've ever noticed that that's the brand of marshmallows on her counter.
2: Yeah. Why is there so much chain smoking in this movie? There's so much because there's one scene where where Ray, Ray is smoking I... a cigarette just randomly and then I wrote it down like why is he smoking in the scene? And then it kept happening in scenes where they literally would just like like light each other's cigarettes and just start talking and I was like I know that there must have been like no rules yet for that yes. but like why?
1: <laughs> Cuz people smoked indoors a whole lot all of the time it's so bizarre to me that all
2: of them smoke
1: (laughs) it's
3: new york too like especially like people in new york smoke but
1: it's also it's also a thing that has been kind of in movies it's often been a symbol of being working class and of being a working joe uh, and like an average man especially
2: i guess it was just so random where he literally is about to like G- turn the corner for a ghost and he just lights up and has a cigarette. I was so like, why? that scene,
3: I'm pretty sure that they did it just for the joke where like the cigarette is like dangling totally. out of his mouth. Because I don't even feel like Ray feels like a smoker, he you know, doesn't. and especially in that moment, it yeah, just like doesn't was, feel real.
2: It was strange. They just
3: did it for a, like, yeah, that reaction shot.
2: In the next one, no one smokes, except I think Ray has um, a cigar at some point because of the cartoon. <laughs> right. And it became a huge hit for little kids. So then they're like, oh, we should take out our smoking scenes.
1: Can we talk about Rick Moranis? Yes! Can we please talk National about treasure? Rick Moranis? International treasure. He's also Canadian. Yes, he is. Yes. Continental treasure, Rick Moranis.
2: Continental
1: treasure. <laughs> I, I loved him. I knew I loved his character growing up. It was, always, like, it was always fun growing up, but now it is... His whole character and his entire performance are fucking hilarious to me now.
0: Oh, Dana, it's you. Oh, hi. Yes, Lewis, it's me. I
1: thought it was a drugstore.
0: Oh, are you sick? Oh, no, no, I'm fine. I feel great. Just ordered some more vitamins and stuff. I was just exercising. I taped 20-minute workout on my machine and played it back at high speed, so it only took 10 minutes. I got a great workout. Good. You want to come in for a mineral water Oh, I'd really like to, um, Lewis, but I have to go to rehearsal now. Excuse me. No sweat. I'll take a rain check on that. I always have plenty of low-sodium mineral water and other nutritious foods in the house, but you already know that. Yeah, I know that. Listen, that reminds me, I'm having a big party for all my clients. My fourth anniversary as an accountant, you know, and even though you do your own tax return, which you shouldn't do, I'd like you to stop by, being that you're my neighbor and all. Well, thank you, Lewis. I'll really try to stop by. Listen, that reminds me, you shouldn't leave your TV on so loud when you go out to creep down the hall phone the manager. that's strange. I didn't realize I left it on. Oh, yeah, you know what I did? I climbed on the ledge and tried to disconnect the cable, but I couldn't get in. So, you know what I did? I turned up my TV real loud, too, so everyone would think that both their TVs had something wrong with it. Okay, so I'll see you later, huh? I'll give
2: you a call. He's amazing. Um, he's o- he's always like under people don't think about him, but he's just so good at comedy. He's such a truly. Good comedian. He's so great,
1: and it does not surprise me at all that he improvised a lot of this. He was like a big um, second city alum. As were
3: at least some of the other guys. I don't know if they right all as were... were
1: several of the other like John Candy.
2: How
3: Remus a... was? I'm not sure all the about
2: Canadians. Dan Archer. <laughs> I think Catherine O'Hara, Eugene Levy. Right. But his whole
1: performance, the physicality of his whole performance, even when he's still a human, trying to awkwardly flirt with Dana Barrett, who's his like neighbor down the way. And like to him, she's very completely dismissive and understandably so. But the physicality of his whole performance throughout the whole movie, but especially like when he gets possessed and when he gets turned into the Keymaster, who gets paired up with Dana Barrett's gatekeeper, I feel like that's one of my favorite pairings in cinema history.
2: i agree i, I love just that love I love just it. like little details where he's like throwing a party that he wants to invite dana to and she doesn't go he goes back to his party and then he we overhear him saying like i only invited my clients <laughs> like these that's aren't why, even no, his
1: friends that's why i invited clients not friends <laughs> <laughs> right like,
3: as if he has friends right he feels really grounded and like a real person which is why it's so funny to like find like supporting characters who feel so fleshed out and it's like it's not that much effort to flesh them out it's like we only see him in like, these weird sort of moments. Like, the only time we see him, like, apart from Dana is really just at that party. So it's like, it only takes, like, you know, one quick scene to establish mm-hmm. who the character is. But yeah, it's just, it's weird that him and horror feel so real. And like, one of my notes was just like, I just kind of want to see Rick Moranis and Sigourney Weaver figure this out on their own without the <laughs> Ghostbusters. I agree. And, and I
1: think, I, I would say, the only way I would push back is, I do think, at least in Egon's sense, we know who he is. And I love... Harold Ramis's performance as Egon. And I think Dan Aykroyd did a great job too, but Harold Ramis' performance and Egon as a character grounded at least that side of the Ghostbusters as a trio for me. Egon gets a lot of my favorite lines in both of these movies, but like especially in the first one when Annie Potts' character asks him do you have any hobbies? And he says, I collect spores, molds, and fungus. And also he has a monologue about uh, all the psychic activity, comparing all the psychic activity and energy happening in New York to a tw- and there are some just really great moments that do very much, like, reveal who he is as a person.
0: It's a little
1: messy. Well, we don't want to play with it. I we just want to sweep prevalences. Mm, very cheerful. My parents didn't believe in toys.
2: Help! He's got completely berserk! Help! Help! all my food!
0: Uh-oh. <laughs> you mean you never even had a slinky? We had part of a slinky, but I straightened it.
3: Yeah, and Dan Aykroyd actually has a lot of lines that are, like, similar, but he he has his own spin on them, where he's just, like, casually saying, like, really ridiculous and complicated supernatural things, like, this is the biggest interdimensional cross-rip since the... Tunguska. (laughs) Tunguska blast of 1909. I can't even say that because it's so, like, (laughs) ridiculous. But he just, like, tosses off things like that in such an earnest way that it really works. I think maybe, yeah, now that I'm thinking about it as, like, the problem is just that they wanted to center Bill Murray so much. And I feel like Bill Murray needs to be, like pushed Honestly, back as not, like, the ma- the only character who has his own, like, storyline with, like, a love interest. I
1: can to- in retrospect, I totally understand why they were like, you know, it's Bill Murray, we gotta turn up the Bill Murray dial. But now, it's like, I, I absolutely 300% agree— that Winston Zeddemore should have gotten way more lines and much more mm-hmm. screen time. Ernie Hudson has so much charisma and instantly like grounds the movie the moment he shows up because he's like the literal working man who like shows up and is like. What the fuck are you people doing? Okay, just pay me and I'll believe whatever you tell me. Mm-hmm. I just need to get a job. It's very clear now how they clearly gave everyone else short shrift to like turn the Bill Murray up. And as much as I love Bill Murray and as much as I love his performance in almost anything I see him in, he absolutely should have been turned down in this movie in order for there to be more actual like ensemble, more of an ensemble dynamic and more attention and characterization given to all those other members
3: because like the real the only like human story is really like him and dana's romance like there's nothing else going on between characters really i i just don't understand like i like winston as a character and i really like ernie hudson's performance in these movies like he's the most relatable but i just like he comes in at such a weird time and then he doesn't like he doesn't have a function there's no reason to bring in an extra ghostbuster like i wish that they had come up with a reason at least we need four people to be able to cross the streams like it could be any reason but just like why do they hire just one extra guy
0: Do you believe in UFOs, astral projections, mental telepathy, ESP, clairvoyance, spirit photography, telekinetic movement, full trance mediums, the Loch Ness monster, and the theory of Atlantis? Uh, If there's a steady paycheck in it, I'll believe anything you say.
1: Watching it this time around, the timing of that was especially weird. It was like, why now?
2: They are on multiple magazine covers, like national magazines, because this is after, I forget which ghostly thing happens. But it's
3: the hotel thing. I think. Is it yeah, the hotel it's after thing?
2: the hotel. That's okay, when they get slimer. So yeah. They get tons of magazines and press, and then they hire one person. I was like, why aren't they franchising? Why is, like, they're that famous and yet they're hiring one guy? Shouldn't there be a line out the door? Like, it should be that they have a line out the door of people that want to join them, and Winston is the best guy for the job for whatever reason because he comes with this expertise like, or they should have had like maybe like one cover story and they're like look they're so proud of you know they're on page six or something that would
3: not have filled out an entire montage to the song
2: Ghostbusters <laughs> it
1: <would not> <laughs> or like it, I think it would have been hilarious like if he had to be the media relations spokesperson and it was like mm. they went out and were fucking bumbling idiots and he had to be the one to like try to clean it up in the press the day after there are so many funny things they could have done with it that also would have justified bringing him in... Was it, like, literally in the middle of the movie? Pretty Where did they much. bring him yeah, in? Yeah, it was. It was weirdly, like, in the direct smack dab center of the movie. And he doesn't have,
3: like, a special skill that it's like, oh, well, like, good thing, like, we have Winston here, because he's doing right.
1: this thing it's right. like he's not a cavalry like riding to the rescue somehow
2: right but the, i don't think they should have gotten so famous on magazine covers in the middle of the movie it should have been like winston hears through a friend at the hotel or maybe there is like a small newspaper like coverage of them and they're so proud of it and they get one guy that comes in that wants to work with them like right. it, it should they shouldn't right. have gotten so high in the middle of the movie
1: So, you guys, are we not going to talk about when Dan Aykroyd got a ghost blowjob in the middle of this movie?
2: (laughs) Yeah, so that was footage from a longer cut where there was going to be, like, some ghost significant other. And they decided to cut that, but they had filmed it, so they put it as a dream sequence.
3: (laughs) It is very awkward, because it's, like, part of the montage, right?
2: I am so
1: happy to learn that because I I had never understood why that was a dream sequence. It's just because they had the footage. I mean, if you make that footage, you're not going to get rid of it. Mm -hmm. You're not going to burn that film.
3: Is there a porn parody of this movie? Because I feel like Gatekeeper and
1: Keymaster, are like, just... Are you
2: joking? Of course there is. And I don't even have to look that up to know. <laughs> there is, just... okay, which franchise...
1: Because I own it. <laughs> which franchise are we talking? Are we talking about Nutbusters? Are we talking about Ghostbusters? Are we talking about the feel Ghostbusters?
3: All I'm saying is that this movie opens up the door to many fun sex games. None of which I've played, by the way. But just, I feel like there's a lot of innuendo. You could do a lot with this movie.
1: Bustin' makes you feel good. Don't cross the streams. <laughs> <laughs>
3: when the Stay Puft Marshmallow comes, <laughs> someone mentions thinking of a giant J. Edgar Hoover, and that would be a very terrifying
1: (laughs) That would have been so fucking funny. I noted that line, too, because there are a lot of ways in which the movie does not consciously date itself, but yeah, that was one of the lines where I was like, I actually do want to see the 300-foot-tall J. Edgar Hoover, please. In a
3: sailor costume, (laughs)
1: preferably. Por favor.
3: So, little Jesse... That's At bad. one point tried to convince me that the EPA guy dies because he gets too much marshmallow <laughs> down his throat when it all melts. And that that, 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 he, that kills him. You but know I don't the, think the EPA guy
1: just likes that.
3: I don't know. But that marshmallow looks delicious. Mm. No?
2: Mm.
3: I mean, I know it was really shaving cream.
2: So let's move on to the real Ghostbusters, which is the Saturday morning cartoon, The Real Ghostbusters. It aired on ABC in September of 1986. It had the voice talents of Maurice LaMarche, Lorenzo Music, a.k.a. Garfield, who was later replaced in later seasons by Dave Coulier a Full House fame, and Arsenio Hall. I am shocked that this concept was not a cartoon first because it's so cartoony in retrospect. I think it almost works better as, like, a cartoon
3: i do too i mean the the premise of the ghostbusters is so episodic because like you can have endless kinds mm-hmm. of ghosts and endless situations of various hauntings is that like it almost feels like the movie doesn't do enough with it and like especially like especially for the first movie i feel like you would expect it to be more ghost related it actually it ends up being like a god and a like interdimensional thing like a
2: like a sp- spirits or like a poltergeist like that kind of like
3: yeah it's not really ghosts even like most of the iconic things from this movie are not ghosts
2: is state puff marshmallow man even a ghost not really
3: he's like a figment of an imagination that becomes real yeah so yeah i mean i feel like there was a lot of potential kind of like left that i guess the cartoon could pick up the slack
1: yeah and it's an inherently very episodic and like procedural concept
2: yeah, I, so as watching it, I mean, it's a Saturday morning cartoon from the '80s. It's yeah. not going to be great, but it, for what it is, I think it works, and it's perfectly suited for cartoons and and for that vibe. Like, I'm sh- I'm honestly shocked that this didn't come first.
1: <laughs> yeah, for some reason, I had th- I had thought. It was, a, like, a gritty comic book or something. I thought it was more of a Ninja Turtles situation, and it also surprised me that that wasn't the case.
3: These franchises feel very similar, because I think probably Ninja Turtles, I think it was created enough after. That was a comic book first, but I feel like the whole, like, sewer thing feels very firehouse so I think there's definitely a lot of, like, rhyming between these two. They're
2: both in New York, too. Very grimy, anything yeah. can happen.
3: Yeah,
1: I definitely watched the shit out of this cartoon. I feel like I ate so much cereal watching, <laughs> watching Blonde Egon. <laughs> oh sorry, and like
3: Green Slimer is like who's like eating everything. is, like a Ninja Turtle. Like there's something about like green things that like Michelangelo. To eat. Yeah,
2: <laughs> I want to go back to Egon's hair. Like, yeah, can what? we talk
1: about Blonde Egon?
2: What is? I'm happening? sorry. Do you
3: mean Egon, Jesse Raphael? <laughs> he's got these bright red glasses he does he even
1: has the glasses he that's right, right that's right to it. okay i'm gonna teach my children that that was sally jesse Raphael. <gasps> oh my god that's so wow. that's what he looks like. teach the controversy we're definitely gonna make a social post on this we've got to make a social post
2: <laughs> i talked earlier about like the cartoon was so popular with kids that um they had to tone down the adult themes in the sequel Um, Mm -hmm. But also Annie Potts' Janine character was stylized in the sequel to look more like her cartoon character.
1: (laughs) That's so funny. You can totally tell. Hmm.
3: What I think the cartoon really gets right is the hair.
1: (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of great hair in it. It
3: differentiates all the guy's hair colors, which the movie does not do. It's like three white nerds who are all brunette.
1: And like for a kid, (laughs) I think it's hard to tell them apart. (laughs) For men, we usually say they have brown hair. We don't call them busty brunettes like you just did.
3: <laughs> They're bustin' brunettes. <laughs> God. And then Rick Moranis is another white nerd, so it's just like, there's just like, too much like, brown-haired white nerds.
1: Some of us white nerds have great distinction in our appearances and coiffures. How dare you say I'm just
3: saying for a cartoon, it's very smart to, <laughs> you know, give one a... Platinum blondes, updo. Blonde. They all have that different
2: is. eye colors too. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: I actually watching it now. I I hadn't watched the cartoon in in tw- more than twenty years, probably. But yeah, I thought it was a perfectly serviceable cartoon.
3: One fun fact about the cartoon: um, I read that interview with Ernie Hudson that we you mentioned mm-hmm. before, and he wanted to do the voice of Winston in the cartoon, and they really didn't sorry. hire him. Yeah,
2: I feel bad for Ernie Hudson. I'm sure he's making quite a lot of money in residuals. Like, good for him, but like the whole character is wasted. Like, and I can't honestly, tell you anything about Winston except he needs money, so he's like a you know a, a working class guy. That's it. Literally, what else is there? There's nothing. He has no skills that we can see. He has no family. He has no reason to join the Ghostbusters except for money. Like, he has no passion for Ghostbusters. I feel like he like, maybe
3: even does have a family and we just don't know it. Like, he feels like a dad.
2: Yeah, like, yeah. I would have loved a scene yeah. where he gets the job, and it could it even be on the phone if not in person, but his wife is like, like, he's like, honey, I got the job. Great, what are you going to be doing? uh, you know, like...
3: And there's so much potential for, like... Because, like, the three guys have, like, upper degrees. Like, they're scientists and he is a working-class guy. So, like, what's the relationship there? Like, he brings, like, some kind of other, like, more, like, working-class smarts to, like, their, like, science... Like, there's just so much potential for that. To have a reason why they need this guy. And yet...
1: And also, I, I really do kind of feel the need to, like, put a point on it that this was one of the most prominent roles he ever got, you know. Mm-hmm. And Ernie Hudson's has got a, gotten a lot of acting roles since then, but they're really small parts. And I do really think that the fact that they backgrounded him rather mm-hmm. than foregrounding him at all in this movie did hold back his overall career, and that is really unfair and unfortunate because most of the other lead characters and actors in this movie became household names, and well, even- they already were. And even, well, but even beyond whatever fame they had before this, this was a movie that, like, launched at least two of those people to pretty big star status. hmm And it it wasn't a zero-sum game. There wasn't a need to actually dial up the Bill Murray to, like, 40 on a scale of 10 and dial everyone else down. That is one of the things, looking back on it, that does seem kind of unfortunate.
3: And that they didn't correct it in the sequel, There's someone I feel even worse for than Ernie Hudson, though. And that is the ghost in the ghost logo.
2: Oh. (laughs) (laughs) You feel worse for
3: that? The cartoon starts with him. He is walking down the street. He is all jolly. He is dancing. I remember that. He's got this cute little curl
1: in his hair. Yeah, he's got his little coif. He's out he in the town. He is minding
3: his own business. He is living his best life. <laughs> and then he gets canceled in broad daylight. There is just a red ban sign that like comes and like traps him. And then he has this like...
2: He tweeted support for Hitler earlier mm. that
1: day. But Becky, that's just one tweet. And look, <laughs> if, if that one white guy... White because he's a ghost, but irrespective, <laughs> he's white. If he can be canceled at any time, then any of us can. <laughs> And he just has this sad little, like, surprise face, like, what happened? I didn't do anything!
3: And honestly, I'm not even make, making a joke of this, like, every time, because we watched some clips of it, and they all started with the Ghostbusters theme, and every time I was like,
1: oh, you poor little deer! Did he ever have a name? No! Ah! Uh, was it Gerald? Uh,
2: they dubbed him Moogly during production. <laughs>
1: <laughs> never mind i don't want to i don't wish to know that anymore moogly i just always found the logo so intriguing and it was always very funny to me that that was never a character that was part of the show but at the same time that is a genius logo
3: yeah oh yeah it's right up there with the batman
2: it's yeah it's a genius logo yeah, yeah.
1: it is like instantly iconic in it's a way cute. that's like i'm astonished anyone ever thought of that like it's
2: yeah.
3: Yeah. Someone I don't have much sympathy for is Slimer,
2: <gasps>
3: who took over the show.
2: Oh, it was called Slimer and the Real Ghostbusters a few years in.
3: And did you watch that opening? It's like the yes. opening, but then like Slimer is like chattering throughout. He's like,
2: ooh, ah,
0: ooh. Like,
3: <laughs> it's just like all these Slimer noises. And then at the end, it's like, it does like Slimer and the Real Ghostbusters. And he's like, and me. And I'm just like, shut the fuck Fuck up, Slimer. <laughs> yeah,
1: they changed the intro to put slime, And they, like, retitled the show? That made no sense to right. me. I don't get what that, why they did that.
2: And in the first one, don't they catch Slimer? Yeah. Because he's still running amok. At
1: okay. the very
3: end, though, I, you see that he's gotten away. Like, he, okay. I think the very last shot of the movie is him, like...
1: Oh, that's right, because they have to you. shut the machine down and let all the ghosts go. So Slimer's part of that.
2: Okay, all right. Yeah, but they, like... Because of the show, they like made sure we have to put Slimer in the movie. Like Slimer's, uh, uh, like the Urkel of the show. You know
1: what? I (laughs) also bet. I also bet that part of it was because High C released. Hi-C Ecto Cooler, which I think... I'm pretty sure that was a tie-in with the second movie, but it was related to Slimer.
3: Would you like to know the history? I
1: think you're going to tell us! <laughs> I would love to know the history of the Ecto Cooler, please.
3: Yes, um, you're right. Ecto Cooler was part of the second movie tie-in. Originally, High c had a drink called a Citrus Cooler, which they rebranded the Ecto Cooler around Ghostbusters, but then they seem to have... Disappeared all the evidence that the citrus cooler ever existed, mm. and denied that it was the same drink.
1: It was always green. The heisty Company <laughs> gaslit all of us.
3: <laughs> the Ecto Cooler was so popular that it outlasted the Ghostbusters. <laughs> <laughs> it Ecto Cooler was still made through two thousand one.
1: That's amazing. What, what is the flavor?
3: It is orange tangerine. It's not anything green.
1: It's orange tangerine. And
3: you would know that if you drank the... In 2001, when they changed it to Shoutin' Orange... Uh, sorry. They changed it to Shoutin' Orange Tanger Green.
2: Was Ooh. it green then?
3: It was still green, as, as was the Ecto Cooler. I
1: don't want to drink Tanger Green.
3: And then in 2006, they changed it to Crazy Citrus Cooler. So it all came full circle with a little added crazy.
1: Wow. I packed that with so many lunches of mine. Oh, my God. I drank so much sugar just through Ecto Cooler.
2: Just looking at the Hi-C logo, it instantly brings me back to, like, lunches. Oh, like yes.
3: I can still taste it. I can taste it right now. Oh, I can
1: taste it right now, too. <laughs> Why are we Absolutely. drinking
2: that with vodka right now? Absolutely. I tried. <laughs> <laughs> you tried to find some? They
3: did release it the again, sl- a, slimer like, a year either. or two ago, but I think it's now
1: again discontinued oh i'm sure
2: they'll release it for the new movie coming out
1: oh i i would bet i would bet they will oh yeah but
3: I, I don't know do you guys like
2: slimer like no
1: okay i never liked slimer i loved
2: Cooler. no slimer has rolls and folds that are gross
1: <laughs> don't <laughs> f- not like, shame hey, <laughs> slimer hey
2: hey <laughs> I cherish
1: legs. Like, what do you expect? I cherish all of my roles. He's on a treadmill. (laughs) Are you saying Slimer needs a Fitbit? How dare you? How dare you, man? He won't stop eating. (laughs) Stop body
3: shaming. It's true. I have questions about the science of him eating. Where does it go?
2: Seriously, what did he look like when he was
3: alive? (laughs) J Edgar Hoover. That is J Edgar Hoover. I can't believe that they like retitled the show Slimer Slimer and the Real
1: real Ghost. Like he's up front now.
3: It's like like retitling like Star Wars, like Jar Jar and the Phantom Menace. (laughs) It's like you put the most annoying character as like your hero.
1: Dave and the Chipmunks and Alvin.
2: (laughs) So the song Ghostbusters. There's a song. Topped the charts for three weeks and it spent 21 weeks on the charts altogether. It was an enormous hit. There are approximately 50 to 60 different theme songs developed for Ghostbusters by different artists.
3: <laughs> where, where
2: is that album? <laughs> I want to see, see the American Idol-style elimination
1: show where they all compete. Where's the Eurovision? Where's the spooky October I know. I'm sorry,
3: but you are busted. <laughs> that, song busted. that song was busted. We've got to put that song in the trap. <laughs>
2: Um, so during a montage for the middle of the film, they used Huey Lewis and the News's I Want a New Drug. It was a temporary placeholder, the montage with the magazine covers. Ray Parker Jr. developed the Ghostbusters song that came to be with a similar riff to match the montage. And that was the song that they ultimately picked as the single. Huey Lewis later sued and they settled,
1: (laughs) by the way. Oh yeah, it's a nearly identical song. It really is. Like, it's not even, it's not even subtle.
3: Yeah, I actually I mean they're like structurally similar but they're not so similar that I would like hear them.
1: There's a guitar part that's completely identical. <laughs>
3: Yeah, the the, lyrics, like the singing part doesn't really resemble it, but... Right.
2: Yeah, so the Ghostbusters song comes with a Ghostbusters music video that we watched.
3: Which I had never seen. I had never seen it either.
2: You know what? I hadn't seen it probably in decades, but when I first saw it on YouTube again, I was like, this looks vaguely familiar... And I was, like, super into it, actually. Like, the neon room. I was like, I like this.
3: (laughs) I feel like more family-oriented sci-fi horror comedies need a music video that strongly suggests being raped
2: (laughs) by a ghost. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's...
1: Yeah. This music video seemed to take the Dan Aykroyd ghost blowjob scene as inspiration artistically.
3: (laughs) (laughs) It's like, what if the ghost was
1: everywhere? Yeah, like
2: i know because there's like a if, hot blonde and she's wearing a nighty. what
1: if all ghosts are just primarily animated by horniness like that's the
2: actual spirit at He's play like here
3: popping out from behind like under her bed
1: in the window
2: i kind of like it but also i totally agree yeah I mean,
1: it's also so worth watching as just an 80s artifact, oh, though.
2: Oh, uh, George Wendt is in it, and Chevy there, Chase. John so Candy. Ca- cameos. Terry Danny De Fito, Terry Gar, Terry
3: Gar. It's like half the people who have ever been branded problematic.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, and Carly Simon even pops up as one of the cameos.
3: Al Franken. So.
2: <laughs> Al Franken is in it? It was bizarre. Honestly, I,
1: I would actually recommend it to people. Oh, it's yes, a fun for sure. Thing. Yeah.
3: Yeah, it was real entertaining. What do you think of this song? Because I'm, I feel so torn because it's so cheesy, and yet it's really like I still like hear it, and I'm like, I kind of want to dance. Like I, it's the it,
2: Monster Mash. It's yeah. thriller. It's like a spooky perennial <laughs> favorite when you're making your Halloween playlist. That you're when you hear it, you're like, yeah, Ghostbusters, yeah. but you're <laughs> never gonna listen to it normally.
1: I mean, that's on the playlist I send people when they've lost a relative and they're <laughs> in grief. God. But also, it really was the werewolf bar mitzvah of its time, mm-hmm. I think. It's, it's very much a Monster Mash type song, but it is, it's inescapably an earworm. It's very yeah. much, I, I think of it as a quintessential 80s song for that reason.
2: For
3: sure. But it's also so horny.
2: So horny? <laughs> yes. Oh, I thought you said corny and I was like, horny?
3: It's corny and horny. It
2: is rife with horns. But you know what? It's not saying anything too explicit. So it, It's adult- saying,
3: bustin' makes me feel good.
2: Something Come strange
3: on. going on. Come on Something wrong
2: I think it's a perfect song For like all ages to enjoy Honestly like <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, am, I just imagine that as a phrase like Stamped on a candy wrapper <laughs> A good song for all children <laughs> yeah. For all
0: ages <laughs> You know it's been a couple years Since we used this stuff I hope it still works It should, power cells have a half-life of 5,000 years There's no time for a bench test Heat them up
3: Ray. Egon.
2: All right, we've made it to Ghostbusters 2, and I think we've already talked about it a little bit, <laughs> but uh, I'll go through the stats. It was directed again by Ivan Reitman, written by Harold Ramis and Dan Aykroyd again. It stars all the same people, as well as Peter McNichol, with the voice of Max von Sydow. It was released June 16th, 1989. The budget was around 30 to 40 million. And that is because most of the cast decided to get, what is it like on the back end or? Plastic
1: surgery? (laughs) Plastic
2: surgery. (laughs) Cut their upfront. Yeah. Points on the back end, whatever it is. The box office was 215 million worldwide. So, made less, but still monster hit. Still a shit ton.
1: Wow. Okay.
2: The reviews, however, (laughs) dropped dramatically. It currently has a 53% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is a far cry from the 97% that the first one has. For example, Gene Siskel called it a poor copy that offered nothing new, as though they were filming the first draft of a script. Jason Reitman, who is the son of Ivan Reitman, and he's also a respected director of Juno and Up in the Air, and the upcoming Ghostbusters Afterlife has a cameo in the movie as the boy at the birthday party who's rude to the Ghostbusters. And <laughs> Catherine Reitman, who is Ivan Reitman's daughter, who also is Maureen Ponderosa on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, <laughs> she cameos as a little girl who they were saying, uh, let's take the puppy away. Perfect. That's so funny.
3: And Oscar the baby is nobody
2: (laughs) it's just two two little boys that are twins german yeah they have a very long last name i did not write their name down because it was very long dan Aykroyd wanted to avoid using new york city for the sequel he wanted to film it overseas and he wanted instead of a threat on top of a skyscraper he wanted to do the opposite and do a subterranean threat so this draft followed dana barrett who is kidnapped and taken to scotland where she discovers a fairy ring and an underground civilization
1: The Ghostbusters
2: would have had to travel through an underground tube over 2,000 miles long that would take three days to reach the other end. None of that happened. (laughs) (laughs) That is
1: not a good pitch.
3: (laughs) But neither was his first Ghostbusters pitch, which was in space. So I'm like, how much of this movie did you really write? Or did you just come up with, what about Ghostbusters? And other people were like...
2: I mean clearly he was why this movie happened was Dan Aykroyd, but he was smart enough to realize other people are coming into this and are gonna I'm gonna listen to them.
3: (laughs) He was smart enough to realize that his ideas were
0: stupid.
1: Well and like he's an ideas guy but he's very much not a writer. And I remember reading stuff even about, like, Blues Brothers, where he, like, spat out literally, like, 300 was there pages. Was a fairy ring in that <laughs> one, too? I would not be shocked if there had been in the first draft. But then he was, like, smart enough to hand it off to other people to, like, kind of bring it literally down to earth.
2: All right, Ghostbusters 2, what haven't we said yet?
1: <laughs> this movie starts with babies in danger. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and ends with Babies in yeah. Danger. That's true.
1: This whole this movie is, is Babies real, in Danger. This is one of the most B.I.D. <laughs> <laughs> movies that we've covered on the podcast.
2: All right, so they were literally heroes with like a parade at the end of the first movie. And then when we enter in this movie, Ray and Winston are at a birthday party because the Ghostbusters basically don't really exist anymore. But like, do people think that this didn't happen with the Marshmallow Man? Is it because all the ghosts went away because they're too good at their job? Like, wh- <laughs> why are they now working birthday parties?
3: Are you trying to say that a bunch of people would suspect that a big catastrophic event in New York that happened didn't actually happen?
2: <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> there are Stay puff truthers is what we're trying to get at here.
2: Everyone has amnesia. <laughs> Everybody
1: knew her. Oh, I don't think it's amnesia. I, I think it's a deep criminal conspiracy that runs to the very heart of the U.S. Also, government.
2: are there only ghosts in New York City? Where what? are they franchising? <laughs> they need a business manager. Is what I'm saying.
3: It does stretch logic a little bit, but I do think that like setting them up as husbands works really well as like a story device.
2: I, I agree, <laughs> but like <laughs> I, I think it job. needed like <laughs> a little bit more explanation. Yeah.
1: That idea of the super quick turnaround of, like, people entering and exiting the media cycle of it all, that makes a lot more sense in a 2021 kind of situation, where it's like, I could easily imagine that... If if people could actually physically discover and capture ghosts, that some other insane shit would completely dominate the headlines like two weeks after that, and they'd be start doing children's parties.
2: Are like are they the only ones that can capture ghosts because they have the tech? I feel like it would have been fun if like a bigger company came in and they're like, "We'll get your ghosts," and they got like draft like Amazon versus little bookstores kind of thing. <laughs> Look, I'm just pitching... the. Amazon would (laughs) definitely do that if it was possible.
3: They'd be like, oh, we've got ghosts. Uh, Well, I mean, I want to say that it's that they got all the ghosts that were there, and then there's nothing left, but I don't think that the movie
0: says that.
2: I don't think the movie does either. They say something about how they got sued by the city for all the damage but I'm like, which one is it? Did you get sued and you ran out of money so there's still ghosts or do people think that there are no more ghosts because you're really good at your job? Like, shouldn't you be like rich then if you caught all the ghosts? I know I'm nitpicking but it was still like I wanted like a little bit more like clarification about like where they are why they're there after the last movie it just kind of felt like one of those things where like we're erasing everything.
3: Well yeah it feels like the first movie in that there just isn't a clear enough like core idea to like just like why people come in at certain times it was just more like I don't know both of these movies feel like moments that you really like like moment to moment but I don't know that the moments necessarily add up to a story like adding a baby it's like a sitcom thing mm-hmm. it's like oh three ghostbusters and a baby
2: not winston again no left <laughs> out again
3: I like this movie. I think it's almost as good as the first one. I don't think it's, like, a bad movie. It doesn't deserve all the flack that, like, I guess those reviews said. Like Seth said, I think it it pretty much works continuously with the first film. But I don't necessarily like the plot of, like, a painting. They have this whole, like thing they've set up with a world of ghosts and then they go back to like kind of the same like weird
2: mythological
1: gods and demigods yeah Yeah. okay
2: i like this movie more than the first one but again i truly don't know if that is because i just grew up with it more i think it's funnier and that's probably why i like it a little bit more but if i'm doing a whole rewrite here i find it odd the whole painting thing and the whole revisiting gods and stuff like i would have liked just something more with ghosts (laughs) You know like what some a ghost is haunting. They hay- build a relationship with a ghost. Like why does it have to be this like evil, like pure evil thing? I don't know. Like there's so many ways you could have done it and it feels weird that this is what they chose.
3: Yeah. It's like what if there was a ghost and you busted it in your sequel. Wild <laughs> idea, I know. But
1: I, I and I think that there is also a way that that could have tied more into like specific New York histories and characters. Because there are kind of moments in both of these movies where they reference, like, the Titanic coming into the port of New York.
2: (laughs) I love that moment. um,
1: And, like, the mayor of New York having had a conversation last night for an hour with the ghost of Fiorella LaGuardia. They kind of make reference to it, but if they had actually incorporated that into, like, the ghost lore and the mythology of it, I feel like it would have felt a lot more organic. Whereas, like, in this movie... Actually, to me, like the Statue of Liberty thing kind of sticks out the most as like a sore thumb, overt plot device with no real story justification.
3: Yeah, it's like, let's have another giant thing. Walk right. through New York.
1: It felt like yeah. the same thing yeah, in well, retrospect. But, but even in the lore that the movie actually does set up, you've got this pink slime that's now running all underneath the city. And for 99.9% of this whole movie, we're led to believe that this pink slime embodies and contains and also helps like generate and reflect all the negative energy in the entire city. Then, like halfway into act three of this movie, we're told, well, it's also all the positive energy. So if you're really happy and nice and loving, then it'll be magical, good energy all of a sudden. Yeah. But that comes really basically out of nowhere. Um, even though there's the, the like, scene early in the movie where they, like, dance along after they put slime inside a toaster and, like, dance along to a song together. I always
2: liked that scene.
1: I love that scene. Like, I, that scene, I think, still works really well and is a good, like, character moment, too. But again, like, the way that that's kind of the only setup for what becomes the most pivotal plot twist in the whole movie, especially now, just sticks out as, like, plot mechanics that were made for plot reasons. And it really does not work in the context of a, like ghostbusters movie
2: yeah i agree i liked the fur coat ghosts
1: i do too <laughs> like
2: yeah that was like i a cute, love cute when the visual. slime
1: like takes people takes takes over inanimate objects and like makes the it turns a fur coat that some scared lady drops in the street into all of the animals that were killed to make that coat
2: like is that a ghost though like i just i i know that i'm harping on this and it's just supposed to be spooky shit but, like, that seems like a completely different thing where it's a goo that turns things into monsters.
1: But that's, that would be, that was a ghost. That was the reanimated, like, ghost of the animals that were killed to make that coat. Is that it? <laughs> I well, don't
3: know. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, when you guys are mentioning things like the Titanic or the coat, like, I would never be able to tell you which of these two movies that was in. Mm-hmm. Unless I, like, had written also the fur coat under my Mm -hmm. Ghostbusters 2 column. And I just watched, like, Ghostbusters 1, like, last night. And I still couldn't tell you which movie. Mm -hmm. And it's just, like, it goes to show, like, how much these movies just, like, don't follow, like, a story that, like, is causing certain things to happen. It's just, like, whatever they come up with is just, like, oh, and then crazy stuff. And...
1: Yeah, they're both super episodic. Like, just structurally top to bottom very episodic
3: and i i didn't mention this when we were talking about the first movie but i have to because the song that magic song that plays i believe
1: it's magic
3: when all the like ghosts come out that's like the one i feel like truly like kind of cinematic moment where it like really feels like like high stakes and like really like Mm -hmm. scary and maybe that's just the song it's a creepy song but
2: is that the first one yeah it's in it again in the second one where there's a montage of all the ghosts coming out
3: Yes, but I just think it's a different song. song. Got it. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, they do they do repeat the beat again. But it's just like as much as they are like big budget movies with like kind of set pieces, they're not very cinematic. Like they're not really shot in a cinematic way. I mean, they had like relatively high budgets for the time, but
2: and that feels not. I mean, sure, I would love if it was more cinematic. There is a focus on the dialogue and the comedy, which is mostly about what you're saying versus how you're looking at it. And I get why they did that. And I think that's why it feels kind of groundbreaking because it's just like a witty comedy with special effects.
3: Yeah, it's weird. It, I was surprised at how writerly these movies feel, and how much like I feel like so many of the jokes would actually probably read better than they actually play. Because a lot of the lines are kind of thrown away with like like Ray will say something ridiculous, but it just like kind of cuts away, and it, it's funny, but it like it, it doesn't like call attention to the jokes that in a way that like a broad comedy usually does. Like it has this kind of like almost like subversive sense of comedy where things are kind of underplayed a little bit, and like a lot of Bill Murray's comedy is like that. Too, where it's like you kind of have to like think about the joke for a second, and by the time you like get the joke, it's already passed. Mm -hmm. In a way, this movie feels like something that you would make with three college friends like to get noticed for like two thousand dollars like you would (laughs) you could put this movie together like obviously without some of the special effects but you would just like even like the you could make the thing out of a toaster like you could make the proton pack pretty Mm -hmm. like you know in a cheap way like it almost feels like a real b movie that just like happened to be get like this a-list treatment of the of a high budget
2: yeah it feels rough around the edges i think that might be why people like it it's not glossy. Not every joke works and not all the effects are like impeccable. I think what makes it work for me the in the ways that it does is that the effects are like B-movie. Like it reminded me of Bewitched, <laughs> like with the special effects in Bewitched and how it was very like corny, but like it was, they were doing it in camera and it totally like fit the vibe. Whereas there's more problems I have with the more recent Ghostbusters the Afterlife one hasn't come out yet but like just looking at the trailer I'm just like these movies need like that that like B movie feel like this isn't an A movie with like glossy you know perfect CGI like these need to be like stop motion and like in camera effects like and
1: the fact that you can tell that they're handcrafted I think matters yes I think it matters you know I
2: think that's really important to enjoying these movies and I think the reason that they don't work now granted the new movie has not come out but I'm just going off the trailer is part of it is because like they, they're not fit for good special effects it has to be like like little shop of horrors special effects or the muppets yeah. or like you know things like that or like Roger Rabbit where like things are actually happening in camera and that's what is very endearing to me about these movies
3: Yeah I feel like this movie has a certain like sense of innocence about it which is as you know expensive as it was and you know like produced by a big studio and all that is like it has this like kind of handmade feel or it's just like a, like a scrappy feel like let, let's just try mm-hmm. it and see if it works like it doesn't feel glossy or polished at all like none of it really feels like perfectly done and even the script you know we're sort of complaining about certain things but it almost feels charming in that way and that it's so rough like ramshackle yeah like they know? let yeah. rick
2: moranis like like improv and ad lib so much, and probably Bill Murray too, like ad libbing all the time. Like that feels more like, let's just see what we get kind of feeling.
3: Yeah, and like the, I feel like the core is not really there for like the Ghostbusters from 2016 or whenever it was, or the upcoming one. Is it's just like this movie doesn't have like characters that I like must see what happened to them 20 years later. Like like we talked about, like these characters are barely kind of characters at all, or like a story that it's like, what if Gozer came back? It's like I don't know, they would. Point their laser at it again. Like, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like it's not
1: recross the streams.
3: There's not much there. Like that, the science of it doesn't ever really like add up or make any sense. So it's like you don't care about those things. So it, yeah, I just don't feel like there's very there's a not lot of nostalgia obviously to build on for a sequel. But I feel like with these movies in particular, that's kind of all there is. And yeah, I I don't know what you would do with a sequel. Like I have not seen the trailer, but I read the synopsis and it sounds like a serious movie. And I'm like. That doesn't
1: sound right.
2: It just feels tone-wise like a completely different movie. And I guess, sure, if that's what you want to do, it just feels wrong.
1: So let's talk about Ghostbusters too.
2: <laughs> I want
1: to talk about Peter McNichol.
2: Oh, of course!
1: Because he is one of my very favorite parts of this movie. One of my favorite characters in this movie. One of my very favorite performances. He is also much more of a Me Too case than I would say Peter oh, Venkman yeah. is. Um, yeah. From the start of this movie, he is overtly sexually harassing Dana Barrett, who is his employee, who also he Also, randomly
2: now works at a museum, even though she's a cellist. She's now <laughs> a
1: cellist who moonlights as an art restorer. <laughs> I, look, look, it's Sigourney Weaver, so I believe that she can do it. I believe that she can do anything she puts her mind to, but that is kind of funny to me.
2: Also, they just gave her a baby. They're like, here, you've been divorced. Here's a baby. Now you're a mom. Yeah. I don't don't have as much a problem
1: as you two do with the fact that she's a mom. I already considered her the emotional core of the whole universe of Ghostbusters, so that (laughs) doesn't change that at all.
2: I do like that she did not stay with Bill Murray's character and they had a like there's they've been apart for a while. Like I like that about it. It's just that, like, it's like they just made a new person they're like now we have a mom who works in an art museum it's like well that wasn't what she was in the first one at all so i guess i guess oh sure
3: i mean and it's clearly just plot driven because they had the painting idea and they were like how do we tie this into yeah. the main like i don't know why why couldn't ravey or art restorer or something like they're the ones who are unemployed like I don't know it's just like a weird
2: it was weird like it really just felt like let's just do whatever we want with this character there's no respect for what we already writ-
3: wrote I want Winston to be a secret art restorer <laughs> that's what I want
1: <laughs> but anyway back to Peter McNichol I love his performance and along with Rick Moranis and Annie Potts, like he was, Peter McNichol was very much the MVP for me. He has an insane Eastern European accent. His name is Janos in this movie. It's uh, Vigo! It's Vigo. <laughs> You are like the buzzing of
2: flies to him. Do you know where he got that accent? Where? <laughs> Kmart. He was in the movie Sophie's Choice with Meryl Streep and he was inspired by Meryl's accent in that movie
3: <laughs> I could not stop thinking of Sophie's Choice during this movie because I knew he was in it and like I don't know like I didn't make that connection but I was just like why am I thinking of Sophie's Choice so much
1: That is so fucking funny I want to include several clips from this movie and maybe a clip from Sophie's Choice by way of
3: comparison Vigo's Choice
1: Again, it was very clearly a character kind of dictated by the confines of the plot, but I actually think he clearly had a tremendous time and a tremendous amount of fun doing it, and it still very much works for me. I think it's hilarious.
0: Say, Johnny, you gotta go again, too. No, uh, actually, I'm preparing uh, this portrait for the new romantic exhibition. Yes? This is Prince Rigo, the roller cartel in Moldavia. Bit of a sissy, isn't he? He was a very powerful magician, Dr. Rinkman, and uh, a genius in many ways. He was also a lunatic and a genocidal madman. I hate this painting. I felt uncomfortable ever since it came up from storage. Well, you're probably feeling what Vigo is feeling, Carpathian kitten loss. He's missed oh. his kitten. We'll just put one in here by the castle. Yes, we so- don't go around,
2: altering liable artwork, Dr. Rinkman, go. Yes, I think go. Yes, the, the joyfulness is over. He's kidding.
1: Well, you're not going to get a green card with that attitude, pal. And then also, Peter McNichol has the the benefit of having, I think, the one scary moment in this entire movie. Eyes? The eyes. There is is a scene where he, if there's a power outage in New York, but for ghost-related reasons, Janos shows up at Dana Barrett's apartment in the middle of the night, in the middle of a power outage, and she's like, okay, creepo boss, you can please leave now. She very overtly kind of rebuffs him, and she closes the door in his face, and the hallway is just only illuminated red, probably by, like, the exit signs, I'm guessing, and emergency lighting. And Peter McNichols' eyes turn on, like, powerful spotlights or something. Mm -hmm. You see him kind of, like, staring down the hallway and walking down the hallway toward you. And I I found that shot to be so scary as a child that I remember I used to look away. It's very when, creepy when the shot would come on, and I still think it's a fantastic visual moment. Um, again, in a movie that usually doesn't aim for very cinematic shots and moments.
2: I agree. There's
1: a ghost nanny. I like a ghost nanny. But
2: it's isn't that Peter McNichol dressed in a yes, way? Yes, also it is. Peter McNichol. Dressed yeah, he's yeah. great in this movie, and I would often quote like as Vigo. <laughs> Like, He's a lot and I think that's why this movie meant more to me than the first one why is... am I drippings with goo yeah why am I dripping with goo Rick Moranis ad-libbing during the courtroom scene is the MVP Rick Moranis, funny moment once, of the... once
1: again I rewatched rewatched. I rewatched Ghostbusters 2 mostly for more Rick Moranis <laughs> um he more Anis for more Anis I never want less Anis but I really found myself <laughs> wanting more your Honor, ladies and gentlemen of the, of, the, of the audience,
0: I don't think it's fair to call my clients frauds. Okay, so the blackout was a big problem for everybody, okay? I was stuck in an elevator for two hours and I had to make the whole time. But I don't blame them, because one time I turned into a dog and they helped me. Thank you. Very good, Lewis. Short but pointless.
1: And in this, he's apparently a lawyer, which, again, is clearly a detail dictated by plot. But also, I love that they... Found more reason to put Rick Moranis in this movie, but it feels
3: like somehow plausible because he's such a like nerd, and he's like an accountant. He's an accountant in the
1: first movie. It does actually totally. He also
2: says like he he got his law degree or passed the bar like a million years ago, and he doesn't practice. Like, why do you want me to be your lawyer?
1: Yeah, it's funny (laughs) how they do do a better job of setting up these minor characters and grounding them than they (laughs) do with any of the lead characters. But again, like Rick Moranis and Annie Potts end up having a kind of love relationship or. More accurately, a lust relationship. And I love that, too. And in retrospect, this was one of the first movies I saw where, like, the nerdy guy gets the gal. Uh,
3: team Gigon over <laughs> here. Because in the first movie... it Egon's like,
2: not into it!
3: They're flirting, though, in the first movie. Are they? Does
2: he She's... know how to flirt?
3: Yeah.
1: I don't think he knows how to flirt. Because he he whips out spores, molds, and fungus.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just i don't know i thought they were i liked them i don't know
1: no i i them. i love the the lewis tully and tullein <laughs> no Hello. you're team telnitz <laughs> i'm team i am yes. firmly team telnitz yes i stand team telnitz. over here <laughs> yeah you you better Gigan. Gigan with that nonsense um <laughs> towel to
0: the mountain <laughs> Well, the Seven Little Dwarfs had a limited partnership in a small mining operation, and one day a beautiful princess came to live with them, and they bartered housekeeping services for room and board, which was a real good deal for them because they didn't have to withhold Social Security or income tax or nothing, which you're really not supposed to do, you see, but for the purposes of this story, I think it's okay. It really is a great place. I mean, it needs a woman's touch, but I think it looks really good. You know. Bedtime. You're very good with children. Thanks, I practiced on my hamster. Oh. So you live alone? I used to have a roommate, but my mom moved to Florida. Oh. Why don't you come over here and sit with me? Okay. So you want to play Boggle or Super Mario Brothers? You know... I think motherhood's a very natural instinct. I like a child myself. Would you? Tonight?
1: I just love that subplot in this movie. I love that they go on a date w- where it's just her babysitting and then absolutely macking on Lewis Tully.
2: And then they won't leave when she <laughs> And then, when then she they comes. won't leave yeah. when Dana Barrett
1: gets back. <laughs> I found Ghostbusters 2 surprisingly enjoyable this time around, mostly for them.
2: Yeah, I liked it more than the first, but I don't know how... I really don't know how much is the nostalgia or how much I actually really liked it. It's just closer to me than Zool. What are the other Gozer, like, to me that's like, oh yeah, that's Ghostbusters versus like, Is Vigo! <laughs>
3: <laughs> oh, I'm all about there is no Dana, only Zool. Like, to me that's Ghostbusters.
2: That is a great
1: line. Can we talk about how baby Oscar is ugly? Has enough time yeah. passed that we can actually just...
2: As a mom... <laughs> That baby is ugly. <laughs> the baby has, like, red stuff on his mouth. It's like they, like, forgot that they fed the baby strawberries and then we're like, let's put him in the scene. Like, it's weird. It's like a
1: skin rash. Give the baby a break.
2: But there's two of them. Get the other kid in. Look,
1: the baby could have had microdermabrasion before production. We don't know. We don't know what fillers he was I'm using. I'm just surprised
2: they didn't get a cuter baby. Ugly baby. How hard is it to get a cute baby? It's Hollywood. Why does
1: the baby need to be cute?
2: It needs to not have like a red ring around his. Mouth.
1: Because we need to teach babies good beauty standards <laughs> for how they should be when they grow up. When we were young, we were beautiful.
2: <laughs> we're not beautiful now. Now we look like Vigo. <laughs> So the Ghostbusters movies had a significant impact on pop culture, and it's credited with inventing the special effects-driven comedy. Such movies include Gremlins, Beetlejuice, Death Becomes Her, Tremors, Roger Rabbit, Men in Black, Guardians of the Galaxy... I think that they can be traced back to Ghostbusters and its influence, and it proved that a mid-budget, you know, lower than most big blockbusters, like a mid-budget comedy with special effects, can actually be like a huge hit and have longevity. Like it is something that has several sequels. It's got like reboots. It's got a cartoon. The merch is insane. Like it's still a Halloween costume. Like people know what the Ghostbusters are. It's not something that has ever been like in the past so far that somebody and not like hey what is that no sign like like (laughs) it's something that's endured and i think that's really remarkable
3: yeah i mean the thing that stands out from all that is that it was also like original (laughs) that's (laughs) true Not a lot of the things that you mentioned that came from it are. So, like, yes, I do agree that it invented a certain template for blockbusters, but I just wish that the weirdness and all the, like, kind of things that we think are a little bit rough and can maybe complain about, but I still appreciate that they were just like, eh, you know, this is my idea, here it is, like, we're gonna make it. It doesn't feel like they were overly, like, labored over by, like, studio notes or anything like that. Like, they just made the movie that they wanted to make and it ended up being pretty entertaining and i feel like this genre has become so i mean like so many like comic book movies that are some of the biggest movies now are kind of in this template but Now, just kind of feel overly like labored over, and there's not that sense of like kind of spontaneity to them very often.
1: Or it runs into the opposite end kind of problem where it comes from a comic book universe that is so deep and expansive that literally every fucking second of it and every plot twist and every character action are things that fans already know and can already anticipate. And so, if they don't go by the book perfectly, then they'll like face the wrath of millions of nerds.
3: Dozens and dozens of nerds, I think is what you mean.
1: Well, but it's it's a lot of people, though, and, and, I, and I do think that...
3: I think it's dozens of very loud people with three Twitter accounts.
1: I'm glad in a sense that Ghostbusters, or at least in these first two movies, didn't fall prey to the desire to have to explain every single thing. I totally agree. Could have done a much better job characterizing these characters, but there's a lot to be taken from this in the sense of just being inventive and coming up with clever plot twists and large scale plot devices. Like, I think it says something about this movie that we all kind of thought the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man was based on a real thing. And that's only because of this movie. There were no other things that were putting forward the idea that there was a Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man.
3: Interesting that you brought up, like, kind of toxic fan bases because the Ghostbusters that came out in 2016 is, like, notorious for having this backlash against the fact that it was like women in the movie and it's one of like the biggest examples of like toxic male driven like anger about a movie like there was so much online hate for that movie before it even came out just because it recast like it recast the precious Ghostbusters franchise with women who weren't fitting into the exact like mold that the movie had built so it's just interesting that that kind of fandom came out of this movie even though it obviously wasn't like built out of that kind of fandom
2: yeah I mean that movie was terrible but (laughs) but it wasn't getting that backlash because it was terrible it was just because a lot of it was just because they were women, and it, it was also going in a completely tonal, different direction than what fans of these movies loved. Yeah,
1: it was terrible, and it was had down of the spirit of the original movie. It didn't, and I do not want this for one second to get construed as any kind of support for the toxic assholes who did make a big internet stink about it. Period. <laughs> The all-female aspect of that reboot was one of the laziest and most surface-level quote-unquote woke things that a development executive could have come up with as an idea to bring the Ghostbusters into this century. And both the fact that that movie was shitty and the fact that that movie was very shallowly conceived are things that have been kind of completely thrown out of the window in rightly going after a lot of toxic, mostly white men, assholes who were really really shitty about that movie on the internet, but at the same time, it was a terrible movie, and the way that Hollywood chooses to reboot and try to wring more money out of franchises, rather than actually trying to revitalize them and breathe new life into them and make interesting new movies out of them, frustrates me constantly. Because I'm someone who loves movies. I'm also someone who loves Ghostbusters. (laughs) I want there to be good Ghostbusters movies. And it does not seem like this industry has any fucking clue how to do that, or any interest in doing so, because its only purpose is to wring more money out of existing properties in the least risky way that it possibly can.
2: Honestly, I feel like tv might be the best place and not just like saturday morning but like like a funny sci-fi like show
1: i totally agree with that a netflix series or like an amazon series where there are multiple episodes so Mm -hmm. they have to get an actual room of writers is the kind of thing that could breathe a lot of life into that idea because again it's such a great fucking pitch that i wish that i had thought of it myself I really do think that like a limited series kind of thing or like a anthology series would be tremendous for that. You
2: could learn more about the Ghostbusters. There could be newer Ghostbusters. There could be like different types of ghosts that like you have more of a relationship with or just explore more. We could get flashbacks to when they were alive. Right. You could
1: actually see what the ghost motivations are. The biggest downside for me when I made the note about like, well, the Ghostbusters really are just like ghost prison wardens is like you never ever get to understand whether or not ghosts have any motivations
2: of their own they're just there to scare you yeah like that's it like, but like what are they trying to scare you from what it's like this sounds so stupid but it's true like are they trying to like usually ghosts and stories are haunting a place because they have unfinished business because exactly. they might be scaring you because they don't want you to move into their house like there's reasons behind their scary they they're being scary and there are reasons
1: that can be addressed in the here and now by people in the physical world that ghosts can't get to yes
2: and in this movie it's just <laughs> yeah
1: i think the
3: question you're asking is what are ghosts
2: what are ghosts <laughs> <laughs> we
1: have a- we ask so many big questions on this show but i think what are ghosts might be the most important
3: I I think your idea about a TV series could definitely work because, like I said, it feels like an episodic idea. I also think another way to go is make make it small and make it like 20-somethings, like kind of a scrappy, indie-ish kind of movie, too, like, and do kind of, like, hokey special effects. You know, like, I don't think, like, a Netflix would do that but, like, you know, you could make an indie film and, like, if somehow, like, you had, like, $10,000 and the rights to Ghostbusters, like, you could just do it (laughs) that way, like, because it really is so script-driven and and, like comedy driven like the yeah, special effects could like terrible and like you could have like a paper mache ghost and it would still
2: right it's not about the special effects yeah. like it's not supposed to look realistic
1: and even from the trailer for the new one I know that's absolutely not the approach that they took. I have a very mixed opinion on Jason Reitman as a filmmaker, and especially as a writer. I'm not really looking forward to the new Ghostbusters movie, and that makes me sad to even think about. I was genuinely excited for the 2016 Ghostbusters movie. I love basically all of that cast. I have learned my lesson from that.
3: (laughs) Yeah. So are you guys gonna see Ghostbusters in like the theater are you gonna see no. it at all
2: i will probably watch it on when it's streaming because i'm curious why it's gonna be bad <laughs> yeah i might watch
1: it on streaming but that's about my only plan for it guys i have one very important
2: question fuck mary kill the ghostbusters
0: <laughs>
3: but there are four so i think we need a fuck mary kill bust <laughs>
2: <laughs> fuck winston
3: fuck winston
1: i don't know are you gonna
3: marry winston
1: Kind of feeling, Mary Winston. Oh,
2: maybe I'll marry Winston because
1: he seems rock solid, reliable. Like he seems so. Reliable. I had this.
3: I had this same thought earlier today when I was obviously thinking about this while making <laughs> breakfast, as I do every
1: day. I cannot even think of you making breakfast. It was at like four. <laughs> <laughs> also, it was a uh, Bloody Mary.
3: I was like, "Well, Egon is very smart, so I feel like he could be rich. Winston, probably not. But
2: he's a nice guy."
3: That's why I want to fuck him. <laughs> mm,
2: who do I want to kill? Probably Bill Murray.
1: Yeah. Kill, kill Peter. Kill Venkman? We're unanimous on kill Peter Venkman.
2: I want to fuck
1: Ray. Because really? Because that ghost girl had a great time, <laughs> and I want to have what she's having. It was a dream. <gasps> uh, you think it was a dream. Kill? I mean, kill is a strong word here. I think I would kill Egon and take all his gear. You already killed
2: Venkman. <laughs> You're on a killing spree. Oh, that's right. I'm going to marry Egon, because he's smart. I'm going to bust Ray. I'm going to kill Venkman. I'm going to fuck Winston.
1: Yeah, (laughs) same.
2: Not if I get there first.
3: Threesome with (laughs) Winston.
1: Wow. Yeah, Winston's going to be in demand. I feel like he'll have an open marriage with me. I feel like we'll have an
2: agreement. (laughs) This is the most important conversation we've ever (laughs) had.
3: I mean, it begs the question: Do you get to fuck who you marry, or is is that
1: exclusive? No, like, you, can- just a
2: bang, you just bang them.
1: Well, but also, does does. What? does ghost banging count does ghost busting count as cheating
2: oh should we count Slimer in this
1: too <laughs> oh Slimer's gonna be the busting cause you know obviously it's gonna oh my be goodness. gonna need a clean up guys Nile this is Slimer.
2: NC-17 episode
1: <laughs>
3: who would have known that our Ghostbusters episode would be more explicit than our Showgirls episode
1: this episode is too hot to handle too cold to hold and that's all the bustin' we have time for on this episode of When We Were Young on our next episode
3: we're gonna take your money away and show you the breath <laughs> we'll see if Iceman completes Goose and we'll feel the need the need to be freed from the greed that comes with being a high-powered sports agent <laughs> did you know the danger zone weighs eight pounds <laughs>
1: god Oh, God.
3: We are taking a cruise through the filmography of arguably the prototypical movie star, in a lot of ways, the movie starriest movie star that has ever movie starred. <laughs> It's a Tom Cruise mashup. We're alighting on two particular titles in honor of the 35th and 25th anniversaries that show off the different facets of his A-list movie stardom. One showing him in his daredevil action star mode and the other as a dramatic and romantic leading man. Those films are, of course, Top McGuire and Jerry Gunn. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Jerry Gunn? <laughs> you didn't mention Xenu at any point.
3: <laughs> oh, well, that, that'll be part of the conversation for sure.
1: The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. If you've enjoyed this, please subscribe to us and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you get your fine podcast product. Also, please contribute to us on Patreon at patreon.com/slash When We Were Young, so we can bring you more episodes. I have been Ray... Egon. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> Too hot to hit. Cold the hole.
3: They called the those busters and the end control. Had them throwing parties for a bunch of children. Well, all the wild silent under the building. So they packed up in groups, got a grip, came equipped, grabbed the proton packs on the back, and they split. But out of a bomb eagle, the master of eagle. Try to battle my boys? That's not legal. The end control.